Good evening, everyone. I'd like to welcome Recording everyone in progress. to the September 2023 board meeting, and we're going to start with roll call. Before you call roll, can I um, go over the remote participation from Commissioner Kelly? Yes. Okay. You may. Um, so, uh, Commissioner Kelly contacted our office um, and asked to participate remotely. Uh, in a minute, I'm going to ask him to give a brief reason why. Um, this would qualify under the emergency services provision of the Brown Act for remote, unanticipated remote uh, participation. The government codes uh, section specifically is 54953 F2A2I. <laughs> um, and so what I would ask is, is that Commissioner Kelly give a brief um, uh, explanation for why he's participating or why he requests participating remotely. This is one of the strange provisions which requires the board to approve um, his remote participation. So after that, I'll ask for uh, um, a motion to be made to allow him to participate remotely. So, Commissioner Kelly. Uh, um, Matt, uh, the wild smoke in the air is just really getting to me and exacerbating some breathing issues that I have and being uh, inside at home is a lot easier to breathe where I have better air. So uh, if I could uh, entertain a motion uh, for to allow Commissioner Kelly to participate in this evening's uh, meeting remotely. So moved. Second. Amy, you can call the roll. Albert. Aye. Eldstrand. Yes. Johnson. Yes. Marrera. Yes. Martinak. Yes. Mizell. Oh, sorry. Mizell is absent. Uh, Walker. Yes. Simon Weisberg. Yes. Motion carries 7001. 7002. Nope. Sorry. Yes. 7002. Can we proceed then? Huh? Great, thank you. All right, if we can then move to roll call. Albert. Present. Elkstrand. Here. Johnson. Here. Kelly. Here. Marrero. Here. Martinak. Here. Mizell is absent. Walker. Here. Simon Weisberg. Here. Uh, we have a quorum. Thank you. We'll now move to the land acknowledgement. The Berkeley Rent Stabilization Board recognizes that the rental housing units we regulate are built on the territory of the Huchun, the ancestral and unceded land of the Chochenyo-speaking Ohlone people, the ancestors and descendants of the sovereign Verona Band of Alameda County. This land was and continues to be of great importance to all of the Ohlone tribes and descendants of the Verona Band. As we begin our meeting tonight, we acknowledge and honor the original inhabitants of Berkeley, the documented 5,000 year history of a vibrant community at the West Berkeley Shell Mound, and the Ohlone people who continue to reside in the East Bay. We recognize that Berkeley's landlords and tenants have and continue to benefit from the use and occupation of this unceded stolen land since the city of Berkeley's incorporation in 1878 and since the Rent Stabilization Board's creation in 1980. 
as stewards of the laws regulating rental housing, it is not only vital that we recognize the history of this land, but also recognize that the Ohlone people are present members of Berkeley and other East Bay communities today. Great, thank you. We'll now um, be moving to item three, which is approval of the agenda. Um, before I take um, additional uh, suggestions or motions, um, I just want to uh, alert folks to know that we are taking off um, and continuing to another uh, meeting the discretionary waivers and um, the appeal has also been continued. Is there any other changes? Yes. Um, I'll move the agenda as noted. Okay. Any other amendments? All right. Can I get a second, please? I'll second. Great. Thank you. Albert? Aye. Elkstrand? Yes. Johnson? Yes. Kelly? Yes. Marrero? Yes. Martinak? Yes. Uh, Walker? Yes. Simon Weisberg? Yes. Motion carries 8001. Great. We will now move to public comment um, on any non agendized items. <laughs> No, no rush. So far, we don't have any members of the public on Zoom who've raised their hand, so. Hi, uh, Paula Laverde, former Rent Board Commissioner. I just want to comment and thank the chair and, and vice chair, um, Sally Alpert, uh, for their comments that they made regarding the landlord's tasteless party last week, um, celebrating the end of the eviction moratorium. As we know, as you all know, that um, seniors, long-term seniors, are the victims and the target of, of property owners. And they're celebrating because they're now going to be able to target these seniors. Many people in their 50s and 60s, and I, uh, what I learned being a member of the uh, Section 8 um, eviction committee, that um, these these are the folks that were being targeted. And, these, and, and lots of them lost their jobs and can't get back up and can't pay those rents. So I want to thank you. I want to also request that all you, and I know that some of you are, are very much involved, but some of you more to be more involved in what's happening with Berkeley tenants and what's happening in Berkeley, because that's really important. And you guys were elected to represent Berkeley tenants. So thank you. Thank you. All right. Um, not seeing any other requests to speak on non-agendized items. We're going to move to, um, to see if there are any speakers on agendized items. Me, I might as well speak now regarding the survey, if that's sure. okay. That's fine. Sorry, I had some notes. So I really want to thank the REM board um, and the staff, especially Ms. Moni Law and Nathan, uh, I mean, um, because of the great work and the hard work it was to do this survey. It was a heavy lift. You know, we started it during the pandemic. And 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 so and we know with the staffing issues, so it was a hard lift. And I'm very excited to see the results because we all, as as you know, as representatives of tenants and tenants activists, to use that information to 
you know, improve the lives of tenants here. I especially found um, interesting um, the data on, well, I'm forgetting now, hold on, I got my notes, on the data on finding that such a limited number of people are aware on connection with uh, disaster uh, disaster um, organizations. Um, and, and that's something that we should be focusing, something I'm focusing on with the Friends of Alline. I already brought it up to te- the Tenants Union to see if we could actually really start organizing tenants and, and reaching out to like the Berkeley's Neighborhood Disaster Program. There's an organization to do presentations because it's going to happen. You know, some things, if, we're not, if we don't get a wildfire, we're going to get an earthquake. And so what are we doing and how are we prepared? Um, the other findings that I thought were very interesting, and it's one, I understand that we've had staffing issues. I understand that COVID hit. But the fact that um, only 57% of respondents were aware of the REMP board and 43 were the respondents. It's on page um, 36, I believe, of the survey, where um, the people were not aware of the REMP board. And so, and, and as I understand it, some of them found out about the report because they had got the survey. So, um, so it is, you know, we had started a social media uh, efforts and I just think that I, I know it's hard. I know, you know, but we had started something you know, the, you know, tips of the month to continue that information so that we can make sure that tenants find out about this because, Equally, if they're not knowing about their rights, how do they exercise their rights? So that's really important. But it's great. I'm very excited at all the results. I'm I'm waiting to hear the presentation, and thank you very much. Thank you. Well, speaking of, we're going to go ahead and start the move to the special presentation. Oh, you need, you need to press the green button to make sure that your microphone's on. Mm-hmm. Till it lights on. The council meetings. Good evening. Okay. So, yeah, the, you're going to get a presentation from Laura Gil Trejo and her team. Um, they were the vendor from ASC, um, the Great partner that we had with conducting this tenant survey. So Moni Law was our project manager on this project. I'm Nathan Dahl, the manager of our public information unit. Um, but without further ado, I think it's really uh, Laura's time to present. And we're here to um, hear her presentation. It is an informational item for tonight. So um, I think we have 20 or 25 minutes for her presentation. Then I imagine there will be some time for question and answers. So can I do a few quick, you're going to let me do the quick. Well, thank you. I want to thank Matt Brown for assigning me as project manager for this particular item that's been three years in the running. It stopped. Now I hear myself again. Um, Thank you to Commissioner Laverde, former commissioner, and all the other commissioners on, I think, three different outreach committees have touched this. Um, Also, the RSB staff and our experts, Dr. Barton and uh, the team that you're about to hear from. Secondly, I want to briefly say we have learned lessons from this survey. Rent control makes a difference. There are families in Berkeley as a result. There's more diversity as a result. There's long-term tenants who would not be here as a result. There are people with disabilities and who are elders who are here as a result. Absent rent stabilization, they would be displaced 
like black people have been, have you seen that in the survey that we have sadly um, need to do more there? And the city council is doing something, I think, there. Secondly, we've also learned that um, the rental housing safety program makes a difference. And a lot of people learn about it through the rent board. When they call us, it's one of our check marks that we encourage people to have their property inspected. Landlords, you have a duty to do so every year. They don't always know that. And tenants don't know that they have the right. Now that they know that they have the right, as former Commissioner Laverde said, they exercise those rights. That's made a difference, the survey shown. Thirdly, one last item, we will take action in the future from lessons learned from these data points. And I really appreciate Commissioner Marrero and Commissioner Kelly, who are very survey-oriented, and Commissioner Alpert are like, what about the data and the statistical significance? You can drill Lisa Laura about that. I know the basics. She's the expert. Um, but we will take action as a result, um, including things like those are your things that you get to pass. You have the power to make seismic safety stronger, relocation assistance for all the habitability problems. Landlords need help also. There are other cities that have done something about that. When they're low-income landlords, I talked to quite a few of them. They have issues in need of resources to prepare their building and to strengthen it. Um, and finally, I agree with the disaster preparation as a major problem that we need to address. And finally, we will not hold the survey during an election or a holiday or a pandemic. So thank you. Laura, take it away. Okay. Um, so thank you so much for having me, everybody. Um, I think that I need to share my screen. And let's see. Um, Okay, can everybody see this? Yes, we can. Okay, great. Is it full screen? It is. Okay, yes. wonderful. Thanks so much for having me, everybody. Um, so um, today's presentation is called Understanding the Experiences of Berkeley Renters, the Results of a Male Survey of Residents Living in Rent-Stabilized Units. Um, so today I'm going to take you through some of the findings of the survey. Um, I'd like to take you through all of the findings, but unfortunately the report is about 38 pages long and that would keep us all us all here, here throughout the entire night and I can't keep you here all night. Um, so I picked some of the more salient findings to present for you tonight. Um, I'm happy to answer any questions after the presentation. Um, so um, the purpose of the survey uh, was to collect essential data on the characteristics of tenants served by the Rent Stabilization Board um, and how they perceive the quality of buildings they live in, the relations with property owners and managers, and their experiences with the Rent Board. Um, the survey addresses um, rent control's contribution to assisting low-income non-student households. The survey also included items regarding the financial impacts of COVID-19 and climate change concerns. Uh, it's important to note that this is the fifth survey of tenants carried out by the Rent Stabilization Board. Previous surveys were conducted in 1984, 1988, 1998, just before vacancy control, and 2009. So right now I'm going to talk a little bit about survey methodology and response. Uh, some of the stuff I'm going to talk about, um, Moni Law just alluded to. 
Uh, I'll try to go over this uh, quickly, but not too quickly so that you don't miss any points. Um, going over the material that you see, I believe on your right hand side, the sampling universe is almost all housing units currently rented or available for rent in properties with two or more units that were built prior to 1980. Um, this these that was about 19,300 units, and those units made up about 73% of Berkeley's rental housing stock. Um, to conduct the survey, we utilized something called um, total design method that was uh, created by a gentleman named Don Dillman. Um, what we did was we um, modified his method to capitalize on online methodology that we have at our disposal now that um, we didn't have at the time that um, Mr. Dillman created his method. Um, the method was uh, similar to what was done in the previous surveys, and that was because we wanted to have some comparability across time. Um, Survey respondents were promised confidentiality so that they were comfortable enough to respond with candor, and they received a $5 Pete's card or Amazon card for completing the survey. Um, we used additional information listed in the Rent Board database to help us compare uh, the information that we received with that database. That helped us to... Uh, examine whether or not the survey sample that we received was um, comparable or generalizable to the uh, sampling universe as a whole. Um, in that way, it allowed us to see, did we, um, did our survey sample match the population universe, the sampling universe, or did we have a survey sample that was skewed in some way? Um, and what happened was we had a two-phase survey design, and the reason why we did this was sort of kind of alluded to by um, Moni, and the reason is, as she explained, we uh, started the survey in October, and this was right around election time. This is when um, election material started coming out. Um, so what happened was in October 15th, we sent out a pre-notification postcard, and this included a QR code and an online link for those willing to complete the survey online. Um, this was followed up by a letter containing the survey, and that was followed up then by a reminder postcard, and that reminder postcard again had the survey link and the QR code. In late November, we sent a replacement survey. What we were hoping to obtain was 786 surveys through this particular um, effort. But what happened was a combination of the election, a combination of the holidays, and a combination of the $5 Pete's gift card not being, the gift card not being enough in 2022 relative to what it was in 2009, we were only able to um, procure about 380 surveys, which wasn't enough to give us reliable estimates that we were looking for. So what we did was we rolled out a second phase um, in February with an invitation letter um, that contained a QR code, and it was sent out to an additional 3,800 addresses. Um, so that was that second phase was enough to get us the total number of surveys what we needed that we needed. 
Um, so this just gives you a sense. This is a little busy, but it kind of it gives those of you who are really into numbers uh, a sense of a couple of different things here. If you look at um, the graph, it tells you uh, the two different phases. Um, it tells you we surveyed, uh, we broke our sample into two different groupings, long-term and short-term tenants. And you can see that long-term tenants were defined as those who have been in their units longer than 10 years. And this group includes very few students. And then we have short-term tenants as those who have been in their units for less than 10 years. And those include a, a greater proportion of students. And for this particular study, student households are defined as those entirely composed of adult full-time students. And non-student households are entirely or partially made up of people who are not full-time students. And the reason why that definition is the way that it is, is we were trying to maintain consistency with the 2009 study. Um, and what you can see in the table is that we sampled long-term tenants at a higher proportion than we sampled short-term tenants. In other words, we oversampled long-term tenants. You can also see in the table how many surveys we received in total in the, from the two phases. So the 463 um, we obtained from phase one and that is because when we rolled out phase two, we sent out additional letters to the people who did not respond in phase one. So I, I didn't mention that. But when we rolled out phase two, we sent out letters to non-responders in phase one. And that gave us the additional that we needed. So we got 463 in phase one and 471 in phase two. Um, our response rate was um, a weighted average of 16.8 in phase one and 12.3 in phase two. And that would be expected because we were in the field longer in phase one. So the response rate was larger. Um, so we did a few adjustments that we thought um, the audience should know about um, before we did our analysis. Uh, we had 20 long-term tenants and 16 short-term tenants that said they received monthly rental assistance and they were removed from the data file. We had one long-term tenant that reported that they didn't pay rent and they were removed from the data file. Um, we had 82 long-term tenants who reported moving into their units within the last 10 years. Uh, so we reclassified them as short-term tenants. Uh, we had 22 short-term tenants who said that they moved in more than 10 years ago, and we left them where they were. And so what ended up happening is that you have 304 total long-term tenants for the study. We had 593 long or short-term tenants for the study for a total of 897 survey respondents. Um, before we did our analysis, uh, we had to weight all of the uh, survey responses because, as I mentioned, we oversampled long-term tenants. And if we analyze the data without weighting them, that would mean that the responses from those long-term tenants would be, they would have, they would carry more weight in the data file than they should. Um, so what we had to do is we had to adjust their responses so that uh, at the end of the 
the day the data file would kind of it would match it would match the proportion that existed in the sampling universe um and so um then reviewing the rent board data to our study sample data we observed that our study underrepresented larger buildings our study underrepresented units with studios or single rooms However, our study adequately captured um, uh, units uh, contained within the different market areas of Berkeley. Um, I should also mention that given our sample size, uh, we have a plus or minus 5% confidence interval with a 95% confidence level. So we have some very um, reliable estimates here. Once we start getting into some of the, um, because of the large number of variables we have, once you get into some of the um, individual variables, some of those estimates may be, um, may have wider um, er er margins of error, um, but overall, um, this is what we're looking at in terms of our margin of error. So tenant characteristics, um, looking at student demographics by household type, um, you see that short-term tenants have a larger proportion of full-time uh, student households as one would expect. They also have a larger proportion of mixed student households. Um, and then as you can see by this very large blue bar here, um, long-term tenants are more likely to have no student households. Looking at the population of student households, um, and that is by taking the number of adults in the house by the number of students going, the number of adults going to school. Um, you see that also um, short-term tenants have a larger number of student population. They have a larger student population, that, and they also have a larger population of individuals in those units attending UC Berkeley. So the age profile of the tenants um, in our study sample was not that different than what we observed in 2009. However, um, the age uh, profile of short and long-term tenants was obviously was very different. Uh, so the median age of long-term tenants was 60 and the median age of short-term tenants was 30. And you can see the proportion of uh, adults 55 years and older differs by long and short-term tenants. So 51% um, of long-term tenants were 55 uh, years of age and older, and 6% of short-term tenants were of that age. Um, children under 17, long-term tenants, there were 10% uh, fell in that age category. And among short-term tenants, that percentage was 6%. Um, and you can also see in the graphic um, that they were, you know, there was an equal proportion of, of individuals under five years old um, between short and long-term tenants. You can see the difference in the proportion of individuals in the household that were between the ages of five to 17. You can really see that short-term tenants are more likely to be 18 to 24 um, 25 to 34, but then you can really see the shift when you start to look at the 35 to 54 category. That's when the color bars really flip 
And um, what you see there is that there's a larger proportion of long-term tenants that are between the ages of 35 to 54 and beyond. So what we see here are changes in race between 1998 through 2022. Um, and what you really see here is that there is a larger proportion of Asians between 2020, 2009, excuse me, and 2022. Um, you really see it's this kind of um, blue bar here, and you see it moving up from 1998 to 2022. I didn't include the percentages in this chart because when I added them in, it just it made the 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 whole graphic looked really busy and you couldn't really see the numbers anyways. Um, and you can really see if you look at the long-term tenants here that it's it's not coming from the long-term tenants. So it must be coming from the short-term tenants because this is, this is Asians among long-term tenants. Um, and then on the other hand, you can see that there's a lower proportion of whites in 2009. So here is, oh, in 2022, excuse me. So here is 2009. Um, I'm kind of circling around this bar. And here is 2022. But when you look at what's happening amongst long-term tenants here, you realize that this decrease in um, Caucasians amongst uh, in 2022 is really, it must be being, it's, it's being driven by short-term tenants. So for median income, the overall median income is 64,500. In 20, in 2009, it was 45,250 and two 2022 dollars. In 1998, it was 46,550. Um, Amongst non-students, the median income is 74,500. Um, among long-term tenants, it's 64,500. Among short-term tenants, it's 84,500. Um, 2009, all tenants, it was $60,222. Um, what you wanna look at here in this particular chart is um, extremely low. Um, a greater proportion of long-term tenants are fall in the extremely low income as classified by HUD. Um, they're also more likely to be very low, which um, includes the extremely low category. Then when you move over here into low, moderate, and above moderate, you see that a greater proportion of short-term tenants fall into these categories. So the story here is that a larger proportion of long-term tenants fall under this uh, lower income category. So we're moving on to rent and building conditions. Um, so this is rent burden of non-student households in, um, across the years. So the median monthly contract rent is 2,083. This is 4% uh, different from the rent, rent board's reported median of $2,005 for October 1st, 2022. Um, the median rent for long-term tenants is substantially lower than it is for short-term tenants. 
um, the student rent is substantially higher than it is for um, non-students. Um, so you can see here that um, the rent burden um, is higher. Okay, sorry, I'm taking a look at this particular graphic. It's, it's throwing me off. Um, up to 30% um, is going, okay, sorry, I had this studied for a second. Um, the, uh, the rent burden, the, uh, it is ex the extremely rent, the, the rent burden and the, ex I think it's the extremely rent burdened um, is going up over time. So this is this yellow bar, more than 30% is going up. And then this, uh, I think it's it's called, um, gosh, I'm forgetting the term right now because um, I'm not looking, uh, I don't have my notes in front of me, but it's ex I think it's called like extremely rent burdened. I'm not, I don't have the term, on, but it's on the tip of my tongue, but this is going up over time as well. Um, and I think that's to be expected. What you see here, so this is looking at it over time. These last two right here on this side is comparing short and long-term. Um, and so when you look at short and long-term, you see that um, short-term are more likely to be rent burdened, both rent burden and severely rent burdened compared to um, long-term tenants. So these are the short-term tenants on the left-hand side and the long-term tenants on the right-hand side. And so taken together, when I look at these data, I see that, um, you know, long-term tenants are uh, more likely to be in the lower income uh, range as classified by HUD, but they're less likely to be on the severely rent burden side, um, which to me means that they're benefiting from rent stabilization, if I understand these data correctly. Um, so unit conditions. Uh, rental unit is in excellent or good condition was reported by 62% of respondents. In 2009, that was 61%, and in 1998, it was 47%. Um, Long-term tenants were more likely to view um, their uh, unit as being in fair condition compared to short-term tenants. Um, as you can see, um, the proportion who viewed their unit as being in excellent condition was equal across the short and long-term tenants. Um, when you look at good, um, long-term tenants were less likely to view their unit as good compared to short-term tenants. And when you look at fair, um, they were more likely to view it as fair. So I think in general, um, these data are telling me that um, long-term tenants are slightly less satisfied with their units than short-term tenants. 65% um, of participants reported their building was in the same condition as when they first moved in. And this was more true of short-term tenants. Um, I mean, and this makes sense. They've been in their unit less time, right? 79% um, of respondents reported that there was a physical problem in their building. And that compared to 75% in 2009 and 83% in 1998. Um, 
when we took all the addresses of the individuals who completed the survey, they um, comprised 727 buildings. So the, the people who completed the survey represented 727 buildings. Um, and when we looked at the number of problems within those buildings, it turned out that there was an average of 3.2 problems um, per, per building. Um, in 2009, there was an average of 2.4 problems per building, and in 1998, there was an average of 3.5. And if you look at the most common problem, it's, it's the issues of doors and windows, followed by plumbing and mold and mildew. Um, the bars where there's only navy, that reflects um, an issue where that reflects uh, an area in the survey where there was there was no such question in 2009 and the question was new in 2022. Um, so you can really see that there are some differences. For example, um, in 2022, heat is an issue, much bigger issue than it was in 2009. And of course, with the heat waves becoming more of a trend, this is um, to be expected. Uh, another thing that's more of an issue in 2022 is secure mailboxes, appliances, um, and appliances. Um, those are also interesting findings. I, I don't understand those myself, but heat definitely makes sense. Um, let's see. So moving on from building problems, um, preventive safety inspections. Um, I found these data very interesting. 44% of respondents noted that their landlord or manager had inspected their unit in the past year. Um, this was true for 50% of long-term tenants and true for 42% of short-term tenants. Um, and 43% noted no inspection, while 13% didn't know. Um, so what you see on the right, that graphic, it shows um, the presence of no physical problems in the building. And it shows by no inspection in orange and inspection in blue. So those people who reported having an inspection within the last 12 months, 67% of them reported that there was no physical problem in the building. Um, did I do this right? Oh gosh, now I'm worried. I checked this graphic like a million times today. Um, and then those who reported that there was no inspection, 90% of them reported that there was no problem. Is this right? Hang on. Um, I think these two data points are flipped around. So it's the other way around. So that people who had no inspections were more likely to report, people who had no inspections were more likely to report that they didn't have a problem in their building. And people who had inspections were less likely to report that they had a problem in their building. So that is what that graphic should say. I'm so sorry. So the, the, the story behind this graphic, what it should say is that Respondents whose manager or um, landlord had inspected their building were more likely to say that they did not have a problem in their building compared to those who did not have an inspection. So buildings with inspections had 2.7 problems per building, whereas buildings without inspections had 4.1 problems per building. So the, 
so that having an inspection within your building within the last 12 months was more likely to be associated with having fewer problems per buildings. Can I ask a clarifying question? Yes. When you say inspections, you're distinguishing just either landlord or manager, not like staff, not okay. like city staff code enforcement. Correct, correct. And it's interesting to me because we're asking about an inspection in the unit, right? So we're asking about having that landlord or manager coming into the unit and doing an inspection of the unit in the past year. And then this correlation, correlation, sorry, is with um, a physical problem in the building. So uh, it's an interesting correlation because one is at the level of the unit and the other is at the level of the building. Um, presence of smoke detectors. Um, this was a little bit scary, maybe, um, to me, uh, but smoke detectors were, um, so if you see 2% of respondents say they don't have a smoke detector, um, amongst the ones that do have smoke detectors, 30% say that they haven't had their smoke detector checked in the past year. 18% don't know if they've had their smoke detectors checked in the past year. So 50% of people who have smoke detectors either don't know or haven't had their smoke detector checked. The other half had. Um, so looking at long and short-term residents or tenants, excuse me, short-term tenants, 31% uh, hadn't had their smoke detectors checked compared to long-term tenants, 25%. Um, and so smoke detector check unknown short-term tenants, 22% compared to long-term tenants, 6%. Um, so I didn't know if I viewed this as maybe long-term tenants being um, greater advocates for themselves or knowing how to use the their system better. Um, but this was, this was interesting to me. Um, this this uh, disability, I was kind of torn as where to put it with um, either respondent characteristics or in building um, characteristics. And you'll see why I put it here in just a second. But overall, 16% of households reported a resident with a chronic illness or disability. And that was compared to 13% in 2009. Um, for long-term tenants, that percentage was 24%, and for short-term tenants, it was 14%. Um, the median income for households with an individual with, uh, with a um, chronic illness or disability is 34500 and that's compared to um, 28800 in 2009, uh, and that's in 2022 dollars. That should say 2009. 4% um, of households... And that uh, indicated a disability that limits walking or climbing stairs. And of these, only 11% indicated the presence of an automatic door opener at the ground level of their building. Um, and that's why I included this, um, this slide here. And none reported having a wheelchair accessible shower in their unit. So uh, what are these respondents' expectations for the future in terms of their housing? So plans to move in the next few years. Um, you can see that 52% of short-term tenants plan to move within the next one or two years, and that's compared to 10% of long-term tenants. Um, 
the difference between short and term short term and long term tenants is a little bit less dramatic in the three to four year mark. But as you can see, uh, short term tenants are still more likely to uh, report uh, their intention to move within three to four years compared to long term tenants. Um, and then you see that long-term tenants are more likely to report their intent to move within more to five years or in more to five years compared to short-term tenants. And long-term tenants are also more likely to report not knowing compared to short-term tenants. Um, so this question asked about whether or not they plan to own a home in the next 10 years. And you can see that 39% um, plan to uh, continue renting in the next 10 years. And that's compared to 20% in 2009. And that to me is just an indicator of the price of housing um, today and just sort of the, the difficulty in purchasing a home. Um, you can see that fewer people plan on owning a home and um, less people are indecisive. 35% um, of short-term tenants expected to own a home in the next 10 years compared to 17% of long-term tenants. Um, and then there was a question, an interesting question on the survey, which asked whether or not um, residents would be interested in um, co-purchasing their building with other res residents if their landlord or manager, uh, building manager, were to put their building up for sale. And you can see that 46% of long-term tenants would be interested in this um, model of um, building ownership, um, and 30% of short-term tenants felt the same. And in all, 33% of um, respondents said that they would be interested in purchasing their building uh, with other residents. The next section of the survey talked a little bit about landlord and tenant relations um, and rent board experience. This one's a little bit busy and I apologize for that. Um, so 79% of respondents indicated they or someone in their household had complained to the landlord or manager in the past year. Uh, and that's compared to 76% in 2009. Um, long and short-term tenants did not really differ um, in this regard. Among those who filed complaints, the owner or manager responded quickly 69% of the time or after repeated complaints 31% of the time. So. Um, I view that as landlords being, you know, uh, fairly responsive. Um, however, long-term tenants, um, managers are more, seem to be more responsive to short-term tenants than they are to long-term tenants. As you can see, short-term tenants uh, reported that they responded quickly 71% of the time compared to long-term tenants 60% reported that they responded quickly. Um, when you see responded after repeated complaints, 40% of long-term tenants answered this way compared to short-term tenants where only 29% responded that way. Um, in terms of responded to, to the complaint, we had fixed entirely, partially fixed, or not fixed at all. 47% um, 
re responded that uh, their landlord or manager fixed the complaint entirely. 38% um, reported that the, the issue was fixed partially and 15% said that the complaint was addressed not at all. So amongst those who said that the issue was fixed or partially fixed, um, it took less than 30 days for 85% of the respondents and it took more than 30 days um, for 15% of the respondents. Um, again, for um, it took longer for long-term tenants. Um, and, and I don't have an explanation for that. My thought was, and we were sitting and reflecting on the data, is that perhaps long-term tenants live in older units um, and they're the issues that they experience in their units are more complex and more involved and um, just take a, a, a more involved response and that that just takes longer time. Um, but I don't, um, but that was the only thing that we could think of. Um, so sources of conflict, nearly three quarters of respondents have never had a disagreement with their current um have never had a disagreement with their current landlord or manager. And this is a sizable improvement from the 66% uh, who reported the same in 2009. Um, so I think that uh, tenant landlord relationships are showing some improvement since 2009. Um, Long-term tenants, 61% have never had a, a disagreement with their landlord compared to short-term tenants. So the relationship seems to be um, better with short-term tenants. Um, rent, um, so you can see the sources of disagreement in the figure to the right. And maintenance um, seems to be the main source of disagreement or conflict. Um, when looking at differences between short and long-term tenants, uh, rent is is was the one um, source of conflict that differed between uh, long and short-term tenants. For long-term tenants, it, it was the source of conflict 14% of the time. And for short-term tenants, it was 24% of the times. Um, so rent is, is an issue uh, more, more often for short-term tenants. Um, communication with the rent board, um, re uh, respondents reported receiving mailings from the rent board other than the survey, 60% reported that they had received mailings from the rent board. Um, however, there was a, a, a sizable difference between uh, long and short-term tenants. As you can see, 87% uh, of long-term tenants reported receiving mailing from the rent board compared to 53% of uh, short-term tenants. And overall, this, this, this was lower than what we observed in 2009 when 87% of respondents reported receiving a mail, mailing or a piece of mail from the rent board. Um, when we looked at respondents' um, uh, contacting the rent board themselves, Participants or someone in the household had contacted the rent board for free information or assistance. Um, a quarter of them had done so. Um, Long-term tenants were more likely to do so than short-term tenants. And this was similar to the percentage reported in 2009. Of those who reached out, 90% um, found the rent board staff to be either very helpful or somewhat helpful 
I think uh, that's a very um, positive finding. Um, as to why um, people reach out to the rent board, a proposed rent increase is one of the most common reasons, followed by getting something fixed in the building. However, you can see that there's a difference there with a proposed rent increase being um, an issue that is really um, more likely to be um, uh, uh, an issue that's uh, faced by short-term tenants and maintenance, uh, getting something fixed in the building is slightly more likely to be addressed or um, not addressed, but an issue that's faced by long-term tenants. And the others are um, more equally um, distributed across the two um, populations. Knowledge of rent control, 57% um, knew of their rent control status while 43% um, did not. And this reflects a decrease from 2009 when 73% knew about their rent control status. Um, however, there is a, a, a large difference between long-term tenants and short-term tenants with 93% of long-term tenants knowing their rent control status compared to 48% of short-term tenants. And we are almost done. Effects of COVID-19 and climate change concerns. Okay, so nearly a third of respondents experienced a financial hardship due to COVID-19. The most common was the loss of job or income. And that was true amongst both short and long-term tenants. Falling behind on rent was the only um, hardship out of those listed with a modest difference when comparing short-term and long-term tenants with short-term tenants experience with 19% of short-term tenants experiencing this hardship and 10% of long-term tenants experiencing it. 43% um, of respondents who experienced financial hardships had received some type of related support rent relief or other financial assistance from the government or nonprofit organizations was the most popular form of support with 40% of long-term tenants and 28% of short-term tenants receiving this type of support. Um, so we asked respondents which of these they were concerned about, which of these one of six um, particular climate change concerns uh, were of concern for them. And the majority of respondents selected at least one concern. 24% of them selected two concerns, 16% selected three concerns, 10% selected four concerns, and 5% selected five or six concerns. Um, about 20% selected none, none of the concerns. Um, a greater percentage of short-term tenants were reported no climate change concern compared to long-term tenants. And a larger proportion of long-term tenants selected more than three climate change concerns compared to short-term tenants. And you can see that really um, earthquakes are prominent amongst the concerns um, and long-term tenants are more concerned about this than short-term tenants. You can see that loss of electricity is the second most prominent concern and then after that, um, it tapers off to heat waves, dangers of wildfires. Um, so this is my last slide for you tonight. Um, 
And it leaves you with something to think about because for all the concern that you saw on the last slide, um, participation in or knowing somebody who participates in neighborhood disaster preparedness uh, was only reported by 7% of response respondents. So they're concerned, but they're they're not quite engaged. Um, and, and probably not that surprising, long-term tenants are more engaged than short-term tenants. Um, and these percentages were consistent with what was observed in 2009. Um, so these climate questions were not asked in 2009, so it's hard to know whether these um, whether respondents are more or less concerned than, uh, with climate change than they were in 2009. One would guess that they are more concerned. Um, however, I'm I'm just you know um, es estimating basically, um, but the fact that this participation in neighborhood disasterness hasn't or disaster neighborhood disaster preparedness hasn't gone up is a concern um less than one percent of respondents in the survey sample lived in buildings on the city's list of soft story buildings that had not yet undergone seismic safety work and of um the the individuals in our sample who felt in, in this particular group none of them participated in or knowing or knew a participant in the neighborhood disaster preparedness. Um, so uh, that is all I have for you this evening. Um, thank you so much for your attention. I, if anybody has any questions, I'd be glad to answer them. Wouldn't, does, do any of the commissioners, Mr. Alpert? Uh, yeah, first, I just, you know, as chair of the outreach committee, I just really want to thank uh, Laura and all the folks um, with uh, who were working with you and our staff uh, and, you know, previous concurrent commissioners. A lot of work went into producing this report, and it's going to be very useful, uh, not just as uh, information about who we are serving, but also about how to improve our programming and will be very useful for hopefully many years to come. Um, my Main question, <clears throat> I have one specific question. I don't know if you'll be able to answer this with what's in front of you. Question 13 was about how people preferred to reach out to the run board. And it had, um, it was, people could select multiple of those options. And one of the things I was interested in is how many people only selected one option. So specifically, um, you know, I think the most interesting to me would be how many people only selected in person. Um, but, you know, the other ones would also be interesting, how many people only selected by phone or by email, um, because it's useful to know, obviously, oh, people, you know, are broadly, you know, comfortable with many things, but the folks I'm most worried about are those who are really, you know, specifically dependent on one form of outreach. And so that would be a good a metric for determining um, uh, kind of which of our, if we have populations that really need one of these particular methods in order to, to contact us. So you want to know how many people just use one method? Yeah. Or specifically how many people just used each method? How many people just used each method? Okay. For, like, okay. for example, what of the people who replied to that question, how many only selected by in-person uh -huh. uh, as a method of outreach? Um, yes. So I have that. It's in the... I can, I have that. It'll take me just a second to, to get it though, because it's, it's, I'm looking at the report right now and it's quite lengthy. 
Um, so it would take me just a few minutes to find it for you. So I'm sorry, I don't have it right right this second off the top sure. of my head. I'll, I'll ask my other question then. Um, and okay. this one, I think you probably, um, it'll be a little bit easier. For the 37 tenants who were removed from the data set, that's the, the, the tenants on monthly assistance and the one tenant who indicated that they didn't pay any rent. Um, what was the reason for removing them? Like the statistical... Right. So they were determined to be ineligible for the cert or for the study. And that was basically I was um, uh, just uh, following the same methodology as uh, Dr. Barton did um, in 2009. And then um, with with that number, 37 tenants, is that enough to draw any actually statistically significant inferences about those tenants or is that too small? That's too small. Okay. Well, those were my those are my two questions. Thank you so much for this report, and I'm looking forward to hearing from staff about how we can use this information going forward. Um, Commissioner Kelly, do you have your hand raised? And oh, then, I'll be brief because uh, my questions have been asked and answered. Um, I just wanted to thank Laura for all of her, you know, tremendous work, and um, Omoni and Nathan, and also just you know this. Um, this survey is really important. I know that the other commissioners value it as well. I'd encourage folks to like take a few passes at it. It's so much more data than you can really process. I've had this presented to me four times now, and I've read it three times cover to cover, and I still have pulled out new information tonight during the presentation, but I think there's a lot of really helpful data points in here. Like we have you know, a really vested interest in encouraging people to do more of the inspections. They clearly work, right? There's a concern about fire detectors that maybe we, there's just really actionable information here. The other thing I wanted to say is this information is public. And so if anyone knows grad students or, you know, folks who would like to have the data set to review or maybe do some more analysis of, the um, analysis that is done by the consultant and her team is really good but there's more analysis that could be done especially within the subgroups that we have data for and especially um, for policy recommendations that might come out of this data um, and the last thing i wanted to say is that in the committee um it's been such an interesting thing i think i'm the only person who was on the the previous committee um, and I, I thank Chair Laverde for all of her work. It was really very, um, very interesting to be part of this for a while and see it come to fruition. I think one thing that um, the executive director and Nathan and our committee talked about a little bit was that we'd like to see this survey done more frequently and to find perhaps a way to be able to do it uh, in a slightly less um, uh, it's worth the, I believe, the cost, but to try to find a more affordable way or a way to subsidize the expense, but to, you know, do it every four or five years so that we have more fresh data because the data really does give us a lot of helpful information. Um, and so that's, those are just my closing comments um, with my gratitude for the staff and everyone who worked so hard on this. There were a lot of um, challenges with this being done during COVID. And um, we were able to end up with a really good product that I think we can be proud of, but also I think it's very helpful. And I think there's a lot of really interesting data in here, especially in some of our new questions around elevators and accessibility um, that we can really draw some policy conclusions from. Thank you.
Thank you. Uh, Commissioner Moreira. Got it. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Laura and everybody else for being here. I do have some questions. I'll start with the back um, of the presentation where it talks about disagreement, um, rent source of conflict. I'm just wondering about this question because what I've been hearing over and over again um, is that tenants are afraid to surface issues with their landlords. And I'm just trying to understand, like, when we look at this and we're thinking, like, it's it's good it's good news in terms of the the number. Are we really drilling down um, and asking if there is tenant fear, such as harassment, discrimination, other things? Um, that's one point that I wanted to bring up, which is also a question you can share in a minute. The other is related to um, plumbing, mildew, the conditions, I believe, that the the survey noted. And if you look across all of those con conditions, there's a lot of leading factors to respiratory disease. And I think that's actually very concerning, given that we're still struggling with COVID. Um, and, you know, She has to do it over. She has to do it over here. The Amy's doing it. Are they all off? No. Hello. All right. Cool. Thank you. Um, respiratory disease. I I see this as like a really important action because you know we one of my colleagues is, is not here present today related to that i know i struggle with respiratory illness and um that feels really concerning given the age range of long tenants and the disposition to have multiple illnesses so i think that there is definitely something that is actionable like really fast really quick here so i wanted to just appreciate you for really drilling down on that specific visualization, because I think it made that point really clear. So thank you for that. The other is related to um, long tenants per, um, percentage that are white, and then the percentage that may be benefiting from HUD. And I wanted to understand if you knew the breakdown across race, black, brown, relatedly, in terms of which which air who is who is benefiting from HUD specifically? Because what I saw was there was a lot of white tenants in the long term. So so I don't know if we have that drill down, but that's just an interesting question um in terms of like how how to move forward and what this board can do and what we should be doing interpartmentally with other um with other commissions. Um and then I'm just gonna mention one last thing. Thank you. Sorry if I'm talking too much. Um, the one about accessibility, um, this is related to wheelchairs, right? This is a physical mobility issue. We also know that there's other accessibility um, across other impairments that may not be physical. And I think this question, when we talk more about how to make the survey actionable now, 
it would be really great to to talk about this question because I know I live in a building that is not wheelchair accessible um, and I now have a physical mobility issue. So I just wanted you, I wanted to appreciate you underscoring that, but it also feels very serious in terms of if you look at the demographic data and um, secondary conditions such as um, asthma or something like that, how much more difficult it is for an individual to get to their dwelling. So thank you so much. Commissioner Johnson. Thank you. Uh, I think the thing that kind of st stood out to me from the numbers that we've seen so far was really um, this kind of comparison between the long-term tenants and the short-term tenants. And I think I have some assumptions I know in the back of my mind for kind of what I think some of the reasons behind some of the differences are, but one of the things that I'm kind of just curious about is I, I think I think we've as a board historically both this board and previous boards before us have really focused on connecting with long term tenants because I think they're in many ways the most vulnerable populations based on like socioeconomic status and based on other things. But it just seems like the numbers I don't know if it was unique to our survey this time or if it was also true in previous surveys. But it seems like there's an information gap that's happening with the shorter term tenancies that like people are not necessarily aware of their rights. And I think that's a um, I think it's an area of potential focus for us as a board because I think, um, I mean, granted, I think it's my in my mind, what I think that really is, is it's people who are like moving pretty regularly and have probably a lot higher incomes, but they probably just don't realize how rent control works in the city of Berkeley and they don't realize that like beneficial for them, it makes sense to like look for a place you can stay in. And, and I think because they don't know those things, it's giving them higher costs and other things. And it's not necessarily, I, there's probably some equity issues there too, because I think to Commissioner Romero's point, I think there's probably a higher percentage of people of color who might not be able to benefit from rent control in some ways in long-term statuses, just because like they have other stresses and strategies that are kind of affecting them. That's my guess. I don't know for sure. I could be horribly wrong on that one. Um, but I, I, either way, I just, the only point I wanted to make is just like, I think, I think that's something we should be drilling down into and kind of trying to get some more answers to those questions. Because I think there might be, um, some questions of like access to information and equity that could really be improved for our board. So I'm just just saying words now. So I'm stop talking. <laughs> um, I think though that one of the realities is that when you first move into an apartment, because we don't have vacancy control, the first four years it's almost like you're living in a market. Right? There's really no difference, and so I think often um, it's after those four years where your rent might be a little bit lower. Now, when you add that to the moratorium, I mean, not the moratorium, but the pandemic happening where rents fell, you're really looking at, you could live in units here for about seven years before it's that different than living in a brand new apartment, a brand new tenancy. So I, I'm, I'm wondering, especially when we're talking about the line of long and short being 10 years, that it's going to take a while before someone really needs, like it means something. Um, to be in rent-stabilized housing. Could I say to that point, um, Chair? Yeah. It actually has been shown under Costa-Hawkins. We did a study a few years ago, and I've been a counselor for 13 years now at the Rent Board. So I could tell from experience for the answer to some of your questions, Commissioner Johnson. With regard to the increases, you're correct. It was 30 to 40% rent increases. So between myself moving out and Nate moving in eight years later, my rent 1600 when he moves in now, it'll be $2,500 or $3,200 or $4,000, and there's no limit. And so parents often call us, Cal student parents, 
isn't it a rent controlled city? <laughs> We're like, um, yes. And there's state law called Costa Hawkins. So it does shift that number up and it makes the newer tenants, that's true, not think there's anything different with regard to what our laws say. And what they normally call us about is that rent increase. And the reason is sometimes the landlords don't update our vacancy registration forms. Landlords, I'm speaking to everyone out there, update your vacancy registration form. It'll say the rent's 1800 because it still has money law in there. Nate moves in. He gets a rent increase notice that says uh, your rent ceiling is 1800 Nate's actually paying 2900 or 3500 And he's like, they're overcharging me. And they're really up out of, you know, they're really mad. They're really upset. And they say they're overcharging me. And we're like, when did you move in? They're like, 2020. We're like, uh, we still have it in here from 2013. So the landlords are supposed to update the record within 15 days of a new tenant moving in. They often turn it in three months, six months, two years, five years, eight years later. So we allow the tenant to actually file their own form, FYI, to tenants. Just attach a copy of your lease, fill out the form, and submit it. That way we have accurate data on what the rent is currently now. So that's one issue. The other one, the emergency programs for disaster preparation, the city canceled the courses during the pandemic. And so I've taken cert and my whole neighborhood group did it. And we had an exercise and a disaster prep and we're ready. We have our own cash. And the rent board actually in the past, about 11 years ago, wanted to create these programs within big buildings that are rent controlled. So you might want to go back to that. You get a cash for free, which is these big things that have everything in it, lights and emergency equipment and radios, a tent. We're, we're actually in so. contact with the um, Berkeley Ready. So that is in the works. Awesome. Yeah, that can answer that problem. So <laughs> thank you. Oh, one I last mean, thing, your displacement project. I forgot. When you asked about the equity and the numbers, the study that you had, I think you the rent board paid for that and they did the you can kind of compare that with this to sort of map that out as to the question of displacement. Any other questions or comments? Let me just see if anyone hasn't spoken yet, if that's okay, and then we'll come back to you, Commissioner Kelly. Yes. So I would also like to thank everyone who worked so hard on this uh, very detailed report. And uh, two things struck me. One was... Uh, again, I I haven't perused the report yet. I've uh, I've skimmed through it, and it struck me that so many people live alone. And uh, recently, we had uh, an event at the uh, Harriet Tubman Terrace <laughs> across the street from me, and there are so many elderly and often disabled people living alone, and it's a city full of students who are young so i i don't know yet i haven't really delved into it but are there any any kind of programs that connect the elderly with the young you know to help them you know exchange you know experience stories um whatever for help getting groceries or getting stuff off the off a high shelf or something like that there's a UC Berkeley program that pairs students with elders. Um, and I forgot what it's called, like Care Bears or something like that. Um, <laughs> so during the time of the pandemic, a lot of things went down, but they're trying to bring them back. 
Yeah, that's that's good to know. Mm -hmm. I'm happy to hear that. Um, Care Bears. <laughs> I, that's what I recall it. It might not be the name. I just made that up. I don't know. <laughs> but something like that. Um, and another thing, of course, uh, since I'm I'm very much interested in in climate change, um, it's encouraging to see that so many people actually are worried, and that is, I think, going to support our efforts on the Environment and Sustainability Committee, um, where uh, tenant resilience is, you know, our main concern. Thank you for your work on that. And we actually have landlords calling us now because their water bills are going up. And the PG&E notice just came out that it's doubling or something. Yep. So um, they're looking at environmentally sound and financially uh, savings financially as well. And the Ecology Center, the rent board actually partnered with them in the past to do a workshop on how to go green and save money at the same time. So trying to do that at both angles. Excellent. Thank you. Great. Um, Commissioner Kelly was next, so if you don't mind. Commissioner Kelly, is, do you want to go or they're actually, let's. Oh, all I mind. wanted to say was that this data set's fully available to us. So the chair had said, you know, it would be interesting to see the transition point between, you know, five and seven years. Like we can pull that data just because the graphics were presented in a certain um, range by Laura tonight. Like if people are interested in getting a breakdown of other years or other um, analysis, like that's entirely possible. We're not only available with the information we have. So if you do have those questions, they can be answered by staff or by ourselves because we can get the data in a way we can look at it more closely. Great, thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, just, I wanna also express my thanks to Moni, um, Nate, um, Laura, thank you all. And of course, all the folks and staff who worked on this. Um, you know, I know how important these surveys can be in, in other contexts. I know when I was doing my work back in the ASUC, you know, those climate surveys on campus were so important. And we saw the difference over a six year period of, you know, what challenges have been addressed and, you know, what challenges just in the black community had not over the university. And I think it really, um, hopefully, you know, put us in a position to shift our response and also shift the ways we approach things. And I think this report um, does similar things for us, um, you know, especially given the challenges of the pandemic, the election, everything. I'm, I'm very thankful we got to this point and we have this data. Um, a lot of things stand out. Uh, I'll be honest, I've, I've read through it only once, so I'm going to have to read through it two, three, four more times to get every single nugget in it. But certainly, you know, the knowledge of the rent board itself and rent stabilization stuck out to me. Um, you know, having such a large proportion, which I don't think is really a surprise to any of us that don't know the rent board or that rent stabilization is a part of their unit. Um, I think that's something we, we have to change. Um, and in my mind, it has to start first with, you know, how we do outreach. Um, you know, I, I think we're in a, a different era now, certainly comparatively to 2009, certainly comparatively to the survey before then. Um, you know, we're, we're not going to reach everyone on social media, and I realize that we're going to need the phones, we're going to need the emails, we're going to need the mailers, of course, but we need a better social media presence as a ramp court, um, I think, point blank period. Um, I think right now, um, if we want to stay more relevant in the minds of a lot of short-term tenants, and I know for this study, that was, you know, almost folks up to a 10-year period, but I know we have folks who are in units for one, two, three years, and that's a huge, probably a huge majority of students 
um, recent graduates and, you know, I've, I've been in the meetings, I've been at, um, you know, ASUC meetings for, you know, tenant rights and, you know, you have the conversation, you'll tell someone like, oh yeah, you're, you're probably in a rent control unit. <laughs> oh, is, is your building old? Is your building multi-unit? It's not owned by university. It's probably rent controlled in the city. We should talk more. So I, I think, you know, increasing that presence, and I know that's something I, I think as a board, we want to move towards, but I think this underscores the importance of us moving towards that sooner than later. And really just in my mind, catching up with where the media landscape is and at this point in 2023, but um, thank you so much for all the work and, you know, I'm looking forward to everything we can do to really put this study into action. Thank you. Anyone else? Yeah, I just want to echo my thanks to everyone that was involved with uh, creating this uh, survey. You know, I also uh, serve on the outreach committee, so I've had an opportunity to um, read this several times. And, and yeah, like every single time you go through it, you learn something new because it's just such a treasure trove of data there. And it's, you know, it's really fascinating. Um, you know, one of the main points that, I, um, you know, I think most of the points that I have uh, going to make have already been made. So I'll just be very brief. Uh, my main point that I want to uh, reiterate is um, is the need to do surveys with more frequency. Perhaps they could be shorter, but, um, you know, the issue is, you know, these the surveys are ultimately a snapshot in time and, you know, doing it so long, the data can be skewed based on current events and, um, you know, can be outdated very quickly. If you look at 1998, it was just before vacancy decontrol. 2009 was during the Great uh, Recession. 2022 was still dealing with the the, uh, the consequences of, of COVID. And I think that's probably one of the reasons why, you know, my, um, my one of the most concerning things I thought uh, based on this data was the, the lack of um, um, knowledge that people have of our existence, uh, the rent boards. Um, and I, I would argue that, you know, um, some of that probably does have to do with the um, with not being able to do as, as much outreach as we typically would before the pandemic. Um, and, you know, you know, other things like, you know, the earthquake stuff, um, why it was so high, I would I would argue that, well, phase two of the survey happened during the same time that the uh, catastrophic earthquakes that hit Turkey and Syria took place, including, and, you know, it was reported in the news that, you know, you had these buildings in Turkey that were just built but collapsed. You know, we, we do, even though we have the, you know, some of the strongest um, earthquake and seismic, um, you know, um, laws, you know, that, that is something that people are concerned about when they read about the stuff in the news. Um, so, um, again, I mean, you know, we can just spend, you know, so much time going for all the different data points and we, you know, we should continue to do so. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I think going forward, if we can do it, um, more frequently, that'll be even better. Thank you. Great. Thanks. Um, yes. Just one more thing. I forgot to ask about longitudinal survey opportunity. Cause I think I'm seeing 1998. 2009 and 2022 and i think having a longitudinal survey would be super impressive especially to demonstrate how impactful um rent stabilization is um to even other states and i would encourage um the rent board folks to look at life course outcomes specifically because life course outcomes definitely has um alignment here um, and uh, if you don't know about that framework, let me know. But I think we should think about longitudinal for for big policy change. Thank you. 
What does that mean? Um, just to remind folks that this is on our an, as an informational item, so we can't take any action. But I would like to ask everyone when you go back to your different committees to think about what can our you know from from the perspective of each committee what what actions um, we may want to take um, you know from this information, and we will be coming back to the board meeting um, to hear from staff about what how they think we should incorporate in the future. Uh, yeah, Vice Chair Albert. Um, yeah, I wanted to ask, and this is, doesn't require a motion or anything like that, but maybe um, the chair and the executive director, or I could work with you all, we'd love to see us do a press release announcing the completion of the survey, especially, you know, linking where people can get access to the raw data. I, I think that we are really, you know, I, I, I think I am, and I think other folks are very interested in whoever wants to do analysis with this data, Great. Like, you know, we want to make it as available as possible, um, the raw data, so that folks can continue to look at it and, and figure out what they can learn. Um, so we'd love to see that go out to kind of the university, local local news, um, things like that. And I apologize for being gone for about four weeks because that was the initial plan <laughs> for the last four weeks. And I'm um, also that I want to ask everyone to make sure you read Appendix C. It's that section where it's open-ended statements from the tenants and landlords or the tenants that are answering the question in their own mind. And you get a lot of ideas like an app. We actually thought of that and we tried to hire someone to create an app for the rent board and it was a little too costly. So if anyone knows a free engineer out there who wants to create an app, that might be an idea, but it's in our section C with open-ended suggestions. Um, Commissioner Kelly. Um, Laura, could you just briefly explain to the commissioners how you selected the um, quotes so that there's not confusion. You had told us in committee in particular that you focused on diversity and so that they shouldn't be read as, um, can you just explain how you did the selection? Uh, right, so um, I, I believe there were three um, open-ended questions at the end of the survey and um, in total, there were about 43 pages worth of worth of open-ended quotes from respondents. Uh, it was too much to include in the report. So what our team did was we went through all the open-ended quotes and we uh, selected quotes that we felt were um, uh, heterogeneous in response. So we tried not to be duplicative in the responses that we selected. Um, so, uh, so that's what we were looking for. We were looking for things that we thought, uh, were really salient. We thought we would be salient to, um, the rent board and we went for items that we thought were not duplicative of one another. Um, so that's, that's how we chose. And we were going roughly for about, um, uh, several pages per question so we we just we wanted to keep it manageable for you all but we wanted to be as reflective of the um 43 pages as possible and uh diverse in the selection um as well yeah so i just wanted to highlight that thank you that when we're looking at that as commissioners we should think of it as interesting comments and conversations like received in a suggestion box but that they're not necessarily a statistically significant representation of what the free responses were.
Um, any other comments that anyone wants to make or questions? All right, thank you so much. We'll be moving on to our next thank you. item. All right, well, we uh, are moving on to our next um, special presentation. Um, I think everyone has um, met uh, Mr. Agasta. Um, I believe this is the second time on this cycle of, I think of us as when we all got elected <laughs> and everyone has um, had the, the great opportunity to hear from you. Um, so anyway, if you wanna just jump in. Thank you, Madam Chair. Brian Agasta, your legislative advocate up in Sacramento. And um, really pleased, can you hear me okay? Mm -hmm. Really pleased to have the opportunity to update you tonight on where we stand um, here at the end of the legislative session and uh, hear any questions or comments you may have. Um, by the way, I, I thought that the preceding presentation was really fascinating. I can't wait to dive into that. There's a lot of useful information there. Um, um, so, let me orient us to where we are in the session, kind of give you a big picture. I want to walk through some bills and the and the last one I want to talk about, um, I have prepared some slides for that we'll walk through because I want to give you a little more detail on that one, which is SB 567, some new changes to the Tenant Protection Act. So big picture, um, last Thursday, the legislature wrapped up its work for the first half of the two-year legislative session. And they have adjourned until next year. Um, and now we are in that 30-day window when the governor will, who has now some 900 bills on his desk, um, he will have 30 days from last Thursday to um, sign or veto all of those bills. Um, and, you know, many of them are not even eligible for him to act on. So we'll see a lot of that action in the last sort of two weeks of that 30-day period. Um Meanwhile, um, you know, the, there's a lot to talk about on what did happen, but, you know, perhaps more to talk about in some ways on what didn't happen. Um, one of the bills this year that we were monitoring closely was SB 466 by uh, Senator Wahab. We talked about it at the prior meeting. It would have made changes to the Costa Hawkins um, Act, including modifying both the um, the single family home exemption and the um, um, vacancy decontrol provisions of Costa Hawkins and, uh, and authorized um, local, local governments to modify those provisions in their ordinance. That bill was then narrowed to just a provision regarding the new construction date. And for jurisdictions like Berkeley, it would have allowed for a catch up period. So those jurisdictions that have sort of an older um, new construction date allow you to catch up to um, a certain date, and then it would be a rolling date um, equivalent to 28 years, um, which is how long ago Cost Hawkins was enacted, believe it or not. So, um, but unfortunately, that bill um, landed on the Senate floor, and the votes were not there. Um, only 13 members of the 40-member body went up on it. So it is technically still eligible to be taken up for using a process called reconsideration in January, but unlikely that that would happen. More likely, if the senator chose to pursue it, would be a new bill on the same subject, but either is possible. I will also just add on that topic, as I think you're aware, 
there is a ballot measure that will be on the November 2024 ballot to repeal Casa Hawkins um, that has been uh, largely spearheaded by Michael Weinstein um, with the AIDS Healthcare Foundation. Um, and that will be the third such attempt um, in recent years. So, so that's part of the flavor there too. The other thing I want to just touch on big picture is um, the budget picture. You know, we had a number of years of, of record deficits. I'm sorry, record surplus. And now we are in a deficit period. The most recent numbers show that, um, well, as you all may be aware, we don't actually know all of the tax receipts for this past tax year because taxpayers were given until October to file their returns um, because of um, wildfire and other emergencies. So we don't know the full picture, but of what has come in and the projections that the experts are doing, there's still going to be a significant deficit in the coming budget year, but less so than originally anticipated. But what does that mean for the work that you all do and that we're here to talk about? Obviously, um, during that deficit period, the governor has been very clear that they're looking not only at new spending measures in the budget, but also bills that are coming down to his desk um, very carefully at the perceived state cost, including what they call cost pressures. That is, if we pass this, maybe it doesn't have a direct cost now, but it will put pressure on the state to fund it in the future. So those are, um, you know, that's part of the big picture. Thankfully, it's improving, but it will impact uh, the conversation next year on a number of things, including um, a proposed bond um, to fund affordable housing, which um, is a multi-billion-dollar bond proposal. One of three. There's also going to be a proposed bond on climate, and a proposed bond on educational facilities, and those will likely go to the November ballot. And part of the conversation in Sacramento between now and then is how much, looking at the budget picture, and then of course you know what how does that money get allocated but that those would be put you know on the ballot directly by the by the uh, legislature and and you know be before the voters in november so even though our budget picture is going in the wrong direction there is um some additional hope for additional funding on affordable housing um turning to to bills as i mentioned i want to just highlight a few i mentioned Senator Wahab's bill um, as one that didn't move, but there are a few that are heading to his desk that are notable, um, that some of which we've talked about before. SB 12 by um, Assemblymember Haney changes the rules around um, security deposits. Um, as you may know, current law, with one exception for service members, is generally that it, the security deposit is capped at three times the rent for a furnished unit and two times the rent for an unfurnished unit. Um, his bill originally proposed to lower all of that to, you know, equal to one month's rent. And that would be the maximum security deposit, which is uh, an important issue for tenants who often don't see the return of the security deposit, or if they do, it doesn't come back in time to lease up the new unit. So it is a barrier for some tenants. Um, the bill as recently modified still does what I just described, but creates an exception um, for essentially small landlords, it doesn't use that term, but it says that if a landlord who is a natural person um, and owns uh, no more than two properties comprised of no more than four total units, then the rule is two times the monthly rent. Um, 
So that bill is headed to the governor's desk. Um, unclear what action he may take on that, of course, which is true of everything I'm going to say tonight. Um, but another bill that we have been watching closely is AB 1620 by Assemblymember Zabur. Makes a small but important change to the Costa Hawkins Act to allow a tenant with a, a mobility disability who needs to move to a accessible unit on the first floor because they don't have access to an elevator and don't have there's no additional accommodation that would make their unit accessible they can move at the same rent and same terms despite cost Hawkins treating that potentially as a change in tenancy that would allow them to raise the rent there's a lot of caveats attached to it um but uh it does at least clarify that area of the law and allow for in addition to what state and federal law provide with respect to reasonable accommodations make clear that um, there is a right to maintain that rent under those conditions. Um, Can you remind us who was the, whose bill that was? Uh, Assembly member Zabur. Okay. Thanks. Um, the, then um, uh, I was talking with the chair earlier today about this, but I wanted to mention one other bill, which is AB 1317, We've been watching that carefully since it was introduced. It's been changed a bit and resolved, I think, our immediate concerns with respect to um, rent-controlled units in Berkeley. But I think it's worth mentioning because this is going to be an issue that we're going to, I think, collectively want to follow. And that is, um, as I said, AB 1317 by Assemblymember Carrillo. You know, there's a, there's a push to unbundle parking, the cost of parking from the cost of rent, the concept being that from the proponents that we over we over park, we require parking and new construction, and we hold out more parking units than are really or parking spaces than are really needed, which then contributes to people choosing to own and drive a car because they have parking included in their rent, right? So if you unbundle it and you see the true cost of both the rent and the parking and they're separated, the theory is that that will change that behavior. Notwithstanding that, it has potential impacts on tenants, especially sitting tenants, which was our initial concern with the bill. Thankfully, uh, it was modified early on to um, only apply to new construction. So right now, it only if if the bill were to be signed, it's headed to the governor. It would not um, take effect until, or it would not apply to units that are constructed before um, January 1st, 2025. So um, wouldn't impact, uh, currently wouldn't impact um, rent-stabilized units in, in Berkeley, but um, which could have had some very complicating factors if the <laughs> rent could be, the, the parking could suddenly be unbundled from what had been the, the rent. So, but, so that's going to the governor. I don't, up to you whether what position you may take on it, but it, it strikes me that while that bill may be innocuous for now, we want to watch this issue carefully to see what comes comes forward in the future. Um, I also, a couple commissioners I know have expressed interest in social housing, and there are two bills that are going to cover this. I was surprised to see um, that they both made it through. One had actually been held on um, the appropriation suspense file. So that's usually the end of the road for that bill, but it was sort of sprung from the suspense file late in the session. So um, those two bills are AB 309. They're in the, your report as well, but AB 309 by Assemblymember Lee, 
which authorizes the State Department of um, General Services to create a, um, uh, well, in addition to sort of defining social housing, allows them to essentially create a pilot project, up to th three pilot projects on state-owned, what we call excess land, land that the state owned that doesn't have a use for and would otherwise dispose of um, to create sort of a, mod a few models of social housing. And um, the the units that would result are going to be a mix of affordability, and it doesn't specify any particular um, percentages. And I should note, doesn't actually mandate that they do it, but gives them the option to do that. So that is, is Mr. Lee's bill. Um, Senator Wahab's SB 555 directs the State Department of Housing to, to do a study on social housing um, and to bring back recommendations to the legislature on that. So that, that too will sort of help from the position of the proponents kind of continue to advance the concept of social housing, which is housing that is not on the speculative rental market, that is publicly owned and that is protected um, from from transfer in a way that would lead to rising rents and that um, provides protections for tenants. So emerging part of the conversation um, here, as it has been in other countries, um, more recently around how do we address the affordability crisis. Um, so those were some that I wanted to highlight. And then if, um, if Madam Secretary could help bring up the PowerPoint, um, I did want to spend a little more time and go into a little more detail on SB 567, in part, in part because, um, as I think you all know, um, in addition to the protections provided by Berkeley's ordinance, we also have a number of units, a growing number of units <laughs> that are not covered. And um, when 1482 was enacted um, in 2019, it, for the first time, created um, some rent protections, obviously very generous rent cap, can be as high as 10%, and just cause protections for those tenants who are not protected by Berkeley's ordinance, and that's true in other cities that have, have enacted rent stabilization ordinances, and so it fills that gap. Now, I tried. we worked to try to get some numbers. These are fuzzy, but at least I would say 12,000 units based on the data. It's a little hard to know how many single-family units are covered because of the 1482 rules that exclude a lot of single-family homes from its coverage, but but that's a significant number of units that are protected by 1482. So I thought it worth a, a little bit of time to talk about what the additional amendments are that are being made by 567, with the caveat, of course, that we don't know how the governor will act on that measure. It's, as I said, on his desk, and um, you know, remains there remains opposition from the realtors and some smaller apartment associations, um, the statewide California apartment association is neutral on the bill in part because of some amendments that the author took at the very end of session. Um, but let's, um, if it's okay, Madam Chair, take a few minutes to walk through that. Yeah. Um, so yes, please. So the bill as I've talked about, began very ambitiously as a bill that was going to lower that rent cap that I just described, eliminate the distinction on single-family homes so that people living in single-family homes would also be covered, make its protections um, available to all tenants upon move-in, as opposed to current law, where it applies 
no sooner than 12 months and sometimes 24 months. Um, but as it moved through the process, it was narrowed to covering, you know, three main areas, which are, um, well, no, I'm sorry, not three main areas, two main areas. One is um, how 1482's protections apply with respect to um, no-fault evictions, right? Because we, in the state law, there's not a lot of detail about what it means to evict a tenant for owner move-in, for substantial rehab, or for withdrawal from the rental market. Um, for example, on the withdrawal question, we have the Ellis Act and local implementing ordinance that really defines how what that means to withdraw and what the penalties are for putting it back on the rental market prematurely, including the right to return at the prior rent and all of that. None of that is in spelled out in 1482. Um, so that's one big bucket. And the other big bucket is enforcement. Um, you know, 1482's original provisions, the primary express, um, well, I suppose not even express, but the primary um, enforcement mechanism is sort of in a defense to an unlawful detainer. There are other remedies to for a tenant to protect himself or to enforce the law or for state and local governments to enforce the law, but they were not expressed. So that's the other bucket. So I just want to walk through a few of the things. Um, on owner move-in, it's probably the provision that um, had the most uh, detailed changes. Um, for the first time, um, it requires that um, the notice identify the name of the and of the relative that's moving in, and then establishes wh who are relatives if you're going to move in a relative that can move in. So it can't be the distant cousin, right? It's grandparent, parent, child, uh, spouse, grandchild. Um, uh, we also establish, or the bill proposes to establish um, time limits. So the owner must move in by a certain period and live there for a certain time period. A common feature in local ordinances. Um, the owner cannot use um, if if the intended occupant already occupies a, a unit on the property, can't use it. Um, and then in response to concerns from some of the opponents, you know, the purpose of owner move-in is a natural person can move in, right? Like a corporation cannot occupy the property. But there were questions, well, what if it's owned by a family trust? What if it's owned by an LLC where the people who own the LLC are, um, you know, a natural person or natural people? Uh, so there were some accommodations made to make that clear that if it's a natural person um, who meets the definition of ownership, they can move in. Now, originally, an owner was defined as they had 51 percent, which is a high bar, which would basically mean there's only one owner who could move in. That was lowered to 25 percent. So up to four people could sort of meet that definition. And then some accommodation made for family trusts, LLCs and partnerships still has to be a natural person owning it still has to be a natural person with that ownership interest. But um, I think on balance with no protections, no definition in the law currently, um, this provides a lot more context around that. Um, next one, please. Uh, the, the other big change, um, not as big as many of us wanted, but was to try to put some limits around substantial rehab. We talked in the Last time I was here about how much or substantial remodel, that's the term in the in the law, how how much um, abuse there can be for an owner using that provision to upset the goal of 1482's protections. 
um, where the bill landed uh, was much narrower than where it began, but it requires the owner to obtain the necessary permits for the work they propose to do and to attach those permits to the termination notice so that there's both verification that they are doing that piece and that the the tenant has knowledge of that. Um, and then if the note, if the work isn't completed for some reason or commenced for some reason, then the tenant has a right to come back at that prior rent. Um, and then expanding a little bit the definition of substantial remodel, which is generally that it requires the tenant to move out for 30 days. There's some additional definitional changes that make it clear that if the tenant could be there for a portion of that's 30 days, then it doesn't meet that definition. So a lot more work to do in that area from the perspective of many proponents of the bill, but that is one set of changes that will add some limits on substantial remodel. I think I lost my clicker. Um, <laughs> um, while the chair is helping me out there, I think that the next slide just points out that on the withdrawal question, thank you, um, while we started out, as I said, while the bill started out with a lot of changes, many of which mirrored what is authorized in the Ellis Act, in the end, to, for the bill to keep moving, the author determined that those those changes were were going to have to be sacrificed. And so it doesn't change the question of withdrawal. Just currently, the law says withdrawal from the real housing market is one basis for um termination of no fault termination and doesn't provide additional detail. So that's, that's probably going to be an ongoing conversation in the years to come, especially as we see um, how the Ellis act is being used in other jurisdictions. And there's a growing conversation about sort of what is withdrawal under the Ellis act. So expect more on that. Um, and then, as I mentioned, sort of the final bucket here is enforcement. Um, I mentioned how in an unlawful detainer there, the, provisions here are, are a, a protection or a defense um, and that that is where tenants often you know use the protections that's where the enforcement occurs there is a provision making clear that strict compliance is required which is generally the law now through case law but just clarifying that if you the landlord must strictly adhere to the requirements of the law and the notice which is um, in fairness to the tenant, knowing what exactly is being alleged. Um, in addition, um, providing that um, where the uh, where it is demonstrated that the landlord has violated either the just cause provisions or the rent cap, the tenant is entitled to actual damages plus um, potentially trouble damages and in certain instances, punitive damages, but also in the court's discretion, attorney's fees, and costs. So providing some additional private enforcement and private protections for tenants, and then uh, making clear that state and local governments can bring actions for injunctive relief to enforce these provisions as well, which gives local governments additional tools to make sure that just as, as the city does with respect to um, its local laws, this rent stabilization ordinance included, um, that they can do that with respect to the TPA. So final slide is just, as I've mentioned, 
Um, it's on the governor's desk. He has till the 14th to decide on this and other bills. But um, really, um, as much as we all are often frustrated by the outcomes in Sacramento, I think a, an important set of refinements to the law that will in, provide additional protections. Um, and we are, I think the proponents of the bill are hopeful um, that the governor will sign it. This board has taken a support position on it. I expect, you know, I suspect we'll talk about what the board's continued position wants to be based on those amendments, but um, now would be a timely moment to take a position on that with respect to it being pending on the on the governor's desk. So with that, let me just uh, hand it back to the chair. I'm happy to take questions, comments, direction from you all. So one of the things that I forgot to do was change the order because we were supposed to have an action item Oh, we didn't. There is no action item. There was supposed to be an action item on this. Um, can we ask that letter um, letters of support be done if there's it's not as an action item? You can <clears throat> you can move to amend your prior motion to uh, to um, adopt the agenda and move this to an action item if you prefer. Okay. In other words, you can take another vote. And and move this to a to an action item if you prefer to do that. Let's quickly do that in case anybody wants us to support or do anything. Um, so I'd like to make a motion to revisit our the agenda and to move this item to the action. A second. Thank you. Can we take a quick vote? Alpert. Aye. Elkstrand. Yes. Johnson. Yes. Kelly. Yes. Marrero. Yes. Martinak. Yes. Mizell? Yes. Walker? Yes. Simon Weisberg? Yes. Motion carries unanimously. And Madam Chairman, just a reminder that the board has already taken a support position on the bill. So the question is, what, what would its position be going forward if that's changed? On 5-6. Yes. Right. I just, in case somebody wanted to do an action, um, I just realized we hadn't created the option. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Vice Chair Albert, did you were you raising your hand too? Do you want me in the queue? No. Commissioner John. Um I have a couple of questions. I think that might be more for our legal staff than for um our advocate. Um for five, six, seven, if it is signed by the governor, I would love to see analysis from the staff about what new excuse me, about what new powers we have to enforce 14. And specifically, if there are any changes we need to make to our regulations or ordinance in order to enable us to access those those new powers and responsibilities that we have to enforce state law. Um, so, you know, assuming it's passed by the governor, hopefully it will. It seems like it's pretty likely, given the apartment association is neutral now. Um, but that would be something I'd be interested in seeing. And like, likewise, for 1620, um, the bill that changed the way that... Uh, that for transferring your rental rate for a person with disabilities seeking accommodations, um, I'd like to hear from staff at a future time if we need to amend our ordinance to make that operative. Can you, for can you repeat the, the the bill number, please? Uh, AB 1620 spur. Is he 1620? Yeah. One six two zero. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and then uh, for um, 
a more legislative question about the AB six AB twelve eighteen, the one concerning replacement units. Could you just go into a, a little bit of detail about how that changes the current uh, rules? Is that that's amending Skinner's? Yeah. So Senator Skinner had a bill SB three thirty, Housing Crisis Act, and um, that provided some tools for developers to get their projects approved more quickly, right? Um, and one of the protections in there is a set of protections about relocation and replacement and potentially right to return. But there are some gaps in there, including spelling out in more detail um, and what clarifying what is the relocation requirements, which are now clearly spelled out as being attached to state relocation law and obligation of the proponent. Um, and some of the timing and notice and rules around um, the the right to return notice and the reloc and potential um, relocation, but then also with respect to um, the replacement obligations. Um, well, really, actually, sorry, with respect to all three, the, the law currently only applies if the housing that's being taken out is being replaced by a housing project. But if it's being placed by a commercial project, okay. it, it does not apply. And this bill would make it apply to any any such development. So, okay. um, you know, generally it had bipartisan support moving through, so it's very likely to be signed. Um, but, um, yeah, clarifying all of that and expanding its protections. So the only change to the replacement units really is that if you're building a commercial project, you still have to replace Substantively, yes. Okay. Yeah. Because that that would uh, it could you know the city of Berkeley right now is going through a process changing our demolition ordinance and our replacement requirements, but it doesn't sound like this change will have that. This, yeah, and also, and we could maybe talk more about that offline too if we need more information. But it's drawing from the replacement obligations that are um, in in um, Tennessee bonus law, mm -hmm. so which you may be familiar with. So um, looking at those and comparing it with what the city is proposing might be a path there. Um, and then my last question is, it's not really a question, it's just for staff, with the AB 12, which did the security deposit change, um, if the governor does sign that, hopefully, um, I know I think we'll probably have to do some effort, work with the BPOA to make sure that landlords are aware of their new reduced allowance for security deposits, um, that if that does come down from two years to one year, or two months to one month, rather, that's going to be some education and outreach um, to our need to partner with. So, Brian, I assume that that bill applies only to new tenancies created right. after yeah. the okay i just wanted to make sure that it doesn't I mean, I it doesn't dial back correct okay and, and thank you actually for that prompt because i forgot to mention an important thing about that bill and 567 which is delayed implementation so on that bill i think it's a six month delayed implementation so it doesn't apply it applies to new tenancies only but also to those created after um july 1 and just for the record, five, six, seven, the changes won't take place until April 1st, which was something the Apartment Association asked for. Um, I guess just to the the question you're making to staff, I would just suggest that those would go to Lyra as the next step. So if, um, if the chair of Lyra, I mean, the committee chair of Lyra would accept those, I think those would be good to um, to be discussed there. Uh, any other questions that folks have? All right. Thank you so Thank much. You. And yes.
unless there are any last, was there any, act, I mean, I guess in terms of the question of any actions, you were saying, you know, did our position change? Um, I mean, I think I've already shared with you my great disappointment in 567, but it's okay because it keeps me busy passing all the local legislation. Um, I just want to make sure that it's on the record that nobody promised the California Apartment Association that that was the end and that there was no grand um, a, uh, negotiation and deal. And so when we ask for the real protections, they're not going to claim that we're going back on our deal. Um, I mean, I know it was, it took, uh, you know, obviously it was a lot of work. And I think for some communities that don't, haven't developed their tenant power muscle yet, that they'll find some, but I think they're going to find what the rest of us realize is that until you, it's, you know, uh, loopholes are loopholes are loopholes. And so they find them. Um, but it does show, I think, the growing strength of the tenant community that we got this far because um, last year, you know, really minimal stuff didn't pass. So thank you for all your your work in doing that. Thank you. Thank you. And thank Brian, you. is it all right if I post the yes, PowerPoint on the website? Yep. Perfect. Thank you. All right. Thank you all. Yep. Thank you. Thank you. Let's go ahead and vote on consent and then we'll take a break. I'll move the consent calendar as uh, written. Uh, second, anyone? Sorry, could you repeat that? I, I don't think the captioner got that. <laughs> I'll move the consent calendar as written. Okay. And would someone like to uh, second? I'll second. Thank you. Okay, so that was um, approving all of the consent items except consent item 8F, the waivers which were tabled to the next meeting per the vote on the agenda. I think only the discretionary waiver was moved. The rest of them stayed. Correct. Oh, I didn't catch it. Only the discretionary yeah. waiver. Okay, thank you. I'm glad I glad I asked. Waiver. All right, uh, Alpert. Aye. Elkstrand? Yes. Johnson? Yes. Kelly? Yes. Marrero? Yes. Martinak? Yes. Mizell? Yes. Walker? Yes. Simon Weisberg? Yes. Motion carries unanimously. Great. So we'll take a, uh, a short 10 minute break for the captioner. Yes. We'll be back. Thank you. 
He has to actively. He missed the deadline. Yeah, I feel like that's Oh, no, he did Oh, is it You Next time, That's great. It's supposed to be gone. Now, how do I put the sound back on? Oh, Amanda, I, we can hear you. Can you fix it? Uh, I'm trying to. I'm trying to, but hold on. Can you fix it? Uh, yes, I just muted you. Thing is gone. But I, I can said the host muted me, but like I can't. So I didn't hear anything. I I can hear you. Can you hear me? Speaker is not. Can we leave the meeting and try again? If, yeah, if you can hear me, um, go ahead. But I can hear you. Oh, here, go back, go back. It's right there. Same as this one. Hear better. Yeah, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Can you turn the spatial sound on? That's what I. Yeah, I fucked this up. All right, if everybody can um, return to the seat, please. You talking to me? Yeah. Okay. Okay, ready when you are.
All right, we are back and we are on. We're on action items. We're on action items and the only action item, it was the chair report, which uh, once again, I forgot what my report was going to be. Um, so we'll be moving on to information announcements and articles. So the first one is eviction moratorium outreach update. Right. Good evening again, um, commissioners. Um, so I'm, I'm Nathan Dahl. I'm the manager of our public information unit. And I want to start with just some, some data uh, related to the total numbers of eviction notices we received during the transition period, right? So May 1st, 2023 through the end of August, um, there was a total of 180 notices, copies of notices that we received at the rent board. So as you all know, in order for, um, a, a unlawful detainer lawsuit to proceed through the courts, they have to issue copies to the rent board, right? It can be a legal defense against the eviction if they do not. Now, this number certainly is not inclusive of all eviction notices that were issued to, to tenants, but these are the ones we know about. Um, and during those four months, there were, like I said, 180 notices. 163 of those were three-day notices to pay or quit. Two were 10-day notices to pay or quit. Um, eight were other notices to cure or quit related to health and safety issues or conditions at the unit. There were six unlawful detainer lawsuits and one notice of termination due to health and safety um, that we received copies of. Now, since September 1st, a little bit more sobering data is coming in. Um, in the past three weeks, we've received 110 copies of notices. So this includes 26 three-day notices, 73 30-day notices, and I'll talk about those in a second, six other notices to cure or quit related to health or safety, safety reasons, nuisance or substantial lease violations, and five unlawful detainer notices. And that's in the last three weeks. 73 of these notices have come from Saha Satellite um, affordable housing. And those, those are the 30 day notices. So this was a data point that jumped out to me. Um, I've been in some communications with our, our colleagues over at health housing community services who have a closer connection to um, these property managers. Um, I will note that Saha, you know, does manage property, not only on behalf of the city of Berkeley, but for other um private property owners who are in these affordable housing um, lease agreements that they receive, you know, benefit and support from the city from. But yeah, it was, it was quite a surprise that of the 110 notices we've received this month, 73 were from Saha. And there are some um, staff in HHCS who are engaging with Saha to learn more about what's going on. Um, I thought it was interesting. They, and you know, the, the very preliminary response that I got from the staff I've talked to in HHCS is, is that, you know, Saha does not take this lightly. They, you know, try to explore all ways to avoid evictions. And, and one of those ways is to provide the 30 day notice rather than a three day notice to, you know, notify the tenants that they are um, behind on rent and they need to pay the rent, but also hopefully provide some opportunity for, the staff support um, for those tenants that have uh, support with HHCS case, case managers and whatnot to hopefully try to get some support in either applying for rent relief or 
figuring out what's going on so that they can uh, avoid displacement and avoid the eviction process. But I thought I would share that that um, data with you. And um, something else that I'll say is that, you know, while our direct availability at the rent board to provide, you know, much more than referrals to EDC or, as you know, we don't provide direct legal guidance or counseling or um, opinions for tenants. We have to refer them to our um, legal partners in the community. Something that has become part of our practice and something that we we talked about yesterday in our, our housing counselor meeting is um, just identifying and strengthening, strengthening those relationships with the staff in HHCS who manage the rapid rehousing program and also who facilitate the flex fund grants through BACs, right? So Bay Area Community Services had, I think they got maybe a million dollars, maybe Stefan, you know, more acutely what they got. They have a, they have a chunk of money that hasn't been um, accessed very regularly. And I think part of that is people don't know about it. So those flex funds um, can be used for things like moving, uh, security deposits, replacement furniture, um, reunification. So they have a ver- they have uh, various um, ways that they can spend those monies. And something we found ourselves doing the last few weeks is informing tenants who are, you know, facing an eviction or you know have made a, an agreement with their landlord to vacate because they have. Um, you know, determine that they won't be able to stay in the unit that they, they've been living in and due to their rent arrears or inability to pay rent moving forward, they're in a position where they're trying to transition. And um, as a service, we've been offering this form to clients who have reached out to us. And, you know, again, we can't provide the, the, the assistance directly, but we can help facilitate submitting that application. So that's something we've it's really picked up this last month. Um, we've helped maybe a dozen people fill out these applications. They were the application was given to us by staff in HHCS who said we sh- we should um, you know help spread the word that folks who who need particularly like security deposit for a new place to move into or moving costs things like that that they should apply. So that's something that we've added to our our scope of work um, these last few weeks. With the Saha, are they at the same properties or are we able to map out how that works? So 50 of the 73 are at at Strawberry Creek Lodge right over there. Strawberry Creek, uh, 1320 Addison. I forget the exact. Yeah, name. Strawberry Creek. Yeah. And um, yeah, they don't even own it. They're just the managers. Yeah. And then, yeah, the other... That's the main one. There are um, 21, 21 7th Street, and then 2019, 19 9th Street. Um, Do we know what those are? I mean, Strawberry Creek is a, I think it's Strawberry Creek Lodge. I mean, they're all seniors. Yes. And then that'll that'll be grand to have 50 um, seniors to rehouse. Um, and then 7th Street and 9th Street, do you know the names of those? Or do you know if those are senior no, housing? No, I, I don't. Um, and I'm, I, they might be smaller. There's only a, a handful at each of those sites. I mean, we had zero evictions during the pandemic. And that we're going to have 50 from one of our affordable housing properties for seniors. I, I just... Yeah. So yeah, no, this one is some, you know, particularly given the the relationship that 
we have with them. And, and again, you know, this week I've been talking with, with staff in HHCS. I'll come back at the next meeting. Um, would like to report back on any efforts that they've been able to make to avoid displacements, because I think it is, you know, this is, it popped out to me. And certainly, like you said, with, with it being senior housing, I mean, these are vulnerable tenants who we don't quite know what's going on at this point, but it, it's quite alarming that so many have received 30 day pay or quit notices from SAW. Yeah. Um, sure. How with, did all of them come in on the same day? Uh, no, no, but, but, um, with that said, um, and if the they, 30 do, they, day... they usually do come in batches though, like okay. this. Yeah. So do 30 day, the 30 day notices that's calendar day. That's not, does that include weekends and holidays and things like that? No, it, well, it's, it's more complicated than that. Okay. I'm just trying to figure out how, how long left we have on this especially the strawberry creek creek one. Oh, i see yeah so those were um those were those ones were received around the 7th september um i guess one of the things i would like to ask is um if maybe on the the tuesday meetings when we usually meet um that we get somebody from Saha and I, I, the thing is, I don't know if that's district, um, four or district, um, two, it's one of the council members that won't care. Um, yeah, I, I don't know if I know we've got a connection to the mayor's office on the dais that maybe we can have a meeting tomorrow, um, to figure out, because, I mean, these are folks that should get our, you know, rental assistance and figure out what the issue is. For It could be a rent strike. I mean, there's a strong tenant group there. That's what I want to hope for. Yes. I, hi. Okay. I would like to know what else we could do. Just as community members, that seems to be very, I dare to use the word unethical. I get if folks are not paying, but there's a trillion reasons why I'm sure they're not paying. So I'm wondering for the experts here, what else can we do to help these people? I think it's making sure that they're helping them apply for rental assistance and having the rental assistance, you know, and, and stop and tell them to stop until we figure out what it is. I mean, that's, I think, what what we've done in the past, because it's not, a, I mean, there's not going to be a defense if people just haven't paid. And that's what's happening is that we've got hundreds of people being evicted right now from Oakland and the rest of the county. And we're going to start seeing it in a few weeks from here because there's no defenses if people just can't pay their rent. So it's about getting the rental assistance. And I do think that the affordable housing providers, um, you know, are struggling. They don't have a big margin. Right. And so I think it does make sense for us to figure out what's going on. And, and did they reach out to the city to get rental assistance and why, you know, why those folks didn't? Are they because they don't have the ability to access it? Well, they're required to give. I'm sorry, I can't talk with the audience, even if they. <laughs> I understand that everyone's. You know, I mean, obviously, this is just unacceptable. Um, but yeah, if we can. Well, so we have the the four by four meeting next week, where I've been asked to give some updates around eviction numbers. So I'm hoping. Before that meeting, I can get some feedback. I know that my colleague, um, Lord Chang, some of you may know her. She she works in HHCS. Um, she 
we've talked a couple of times this week. She's going to be reaching out and trying to have some discussions, I think tomorrow with um, Angela from Saha um, to better understand if they understand what's going on and if there are some issues or barriers here and certainly, you know, offering um, to the tenants there to make sure that they know about the rent relief program. We don't know if there's a rent strike. I mean, I heard, I've heard tangentially there have been cons- habitability concerns at um, this property in particular, but um, yeah, we need to, to know more and I hope I can provide a little more insight next week. Cause yeah, you know, we would hope that as many as possible of these 50, I think it's 52 at Strawberry Creek Lodge, you know, don't have to go through the next step, which is a unlawful detainer complaint. So can we reach out to the tenant group at the Strawberry Creek and ask if they want us to hold a educational session? I know this is probably not what you want me to ask, but I'd be happy to attend. So, well, what I, I mean, I, I think I'll defer to Shauna and Matt there. Yeah. We we have received call, client calls from folks at these units. Um, I don't have the specific details, but um, certainly folks who've received these notices have called us and we give our standard. And what did, what did you get any details from them in terms of, were they saying, I just can't pay because... Like yes. you, what we just that that they just can't pay. Yeah. So we've made, I think this week, four or five referrals to EDC from folks at this property. Um, some of them did cite habitability, you know, concerns, which of course the landlord would have to assert their substantial compliance with the implied warranty of habitability to proceed with the eviction. And maybe that will be part of their legal defense. But, mm-hmm. you know, we always advise folks not to, to withhold rent um, unless they go through the, the process of a rent reduction petition that's granted by the rent board just because it does make them more vulnerable to eviction. So, um, so yeah, we're, we're doing our normal course of counseling for folks who, who do co- contact our offices. We, we, you know, when, when these came in, we sent out our template letters to the tenants offering our services and how to get in touch with us. So some of those folks have started to reach out and engage and, and gain counseling. Um, but generally we don't, you know, we wouldn't, set up an event or, or do direct outreach or workshop um, for a particular group, but. No, I think, I mean, you know, I think what's exceptional is that these are all seniors. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and also to be frank, you know, many of them are very important historical figures um, in many civil rights fights. And so it, this is, you know, it's really a gem in our community. So I just feel like for us to lose and, I mean, just knowing the trauma of receiving notices um, can give somebody a heart attack. I mean, in fact, they're showing that. They're now checking in emergency rooms when people come up with heart attacks. One of the questions I ask is, are you having housing issues? Yeah. And some of them are for very nominal amounts. You know, we're talking a couple hundred dollars on some. So I'll try to synthesize the data a little bit more for the four by four. And if, you know, perhaps... um, I guess it's not agendized for that meeting, but, you know, it seems to me that if there is rent relief requests from these folks, particularly if it's two or three or $400, you know, that those should be granted just to help them avoid, you know, displacement or the next step in the eviction process. Um, but I'll try to synthesize the numbers a little bit just to give a snapshot of like what the amounts owed are. But again, you know, this happened actually during the, the, um, eviction moratorium transition period as well as, and even before the transition period, we were getting eviction notices from 
our affordable housing partners and sometimes with like rent, like $10 owed for rent. So welcome to my world. Um, I mean, those of us who've done eviction defense, um, can we ask the head of Saha to come to the four by four? I'd like to ask them to come and say the reason is, is because you've got, as far as we can tell, you're evicting 30 seniors 50. or 50 seniors. But let's just cover the parties um, that landlords are celebrating. Um, anything else that you want to share with us? Um, well, I know I kind of had three different items there. I can yeah. blend them all together into one presentation, I guess. So I believe in your packet, you saw our third and, and final mailer. Um, thank you, Chair, for your support and input on particularly the flow chart <laughs> that helped to make it more clear and concise what the process, uh, you know, folks need to know about for evictions. But um, yeah, so that that letter went out. Um, we, we received good feedback um, from folks in the community, a few folks really appreciative and, and, you know, had cited, hey, I got all three mailers. Thank you for keeping me in the loop. A lot of folks, um, you know, have reached out, particularly because they received those mailers and have been vulnerable or owed money. So in the course of our counseling work, just referred them to EDC and you know, give them insight about their rights um, as it relates to evictions. So that is the end of our mailing campaign. Um, there was a little bit of um, a surplus from that. So as I uh, brought to the outreach committee last week or two weeks ago, I guess it was, um, we've been exploring ways to spend some of those um, surplus funds. And with the input from EDC, um, we were initially looking at, you know, perhaps bus stop ads or bus ads or BART station ads. And unfortunately, those campaigns didn't really work the way that we, we were hoping that they could. But EDC gave us some advice um, and really encouraged us to pursue radio spots because they have had blind and visually impaired clients who they feel um, could use the extra support. And it's another medium that we haven't um, used yet. So I've put in requests with KPFA and KQED just to... Um, <clears throat> They're not the best at being responsive, but I've messaged and tried to get on their, um, there's, there's, there's some line of communication, but there's, a, we're still working on it. Um, but yeah, we're hoping to get some radio spots, spend some money there. Um, just informing people that if they are facing eviction or owe, uh, rent money, um, to contact the rent board so we can help advise them on where they may be able to go to get resources. And then also, um, a really nice development in the last couple of weeks with, the new community outreach coordinator at, for BUSD. Her name's Lydia. Um, I don't know if any of you have met her. Sean and I met her in person actually last weekend at the Black to School event that we tabled at. Um, but she's helping us to coordinate potentially using BUSD's um, robocalling system oh, great. to do some direct messaging related to the end of the eviction moratorium and where families who might be facing eviction or who owe rent um, that they should call us. So that those are our next two steps to try to spend some of that surplus and um, continue to do outreach in that way. Um, I also wonder if we could, you know, in terms of talking with the elementary schools about sending home flyers. Mm. And I assume we've put on the um, directories this year, have we done the advertisement again? 
Yeah. So we're right now is the time that the schools are doing that. So just in the last two weeks, four of the schools have reached out to us inquiring about placing the ads. And yeah, we're, we're moving that forward as well. So one thing that could go on there maybe is the direct information. I mean, maybe changing up the way the advertisement is, but I think sending, seeing if we can send home a flyer, I know that they will, will do this usually Fridays, they get put in kids' backpacks. Yeah. And that's one thing Lydia actually suggested. So again, she's the outreach, um, community outreach coordinator for BUSD. And she put me in touch with, I guess it's another one of the principals who's on that committee who um, also helps with outreach strategies. And that's one thing she, she suggested we consider as well. We'll have to look at the um, potential printing costs and all that for the hard copy materials. But I think, you know, depending on what they come back with, and we're supposed to meet next week, uh, I'm supposed to go to this committee meeting at Oh, I guess over the, right next door there. Um, yeah, they meet, I think, every two weeks, and they invited me to come to the next meeting. So we're going to flush it out more and, and try to put together a little campaign that uses some of these surplus funds, but in a way that, um, yeah, gets home to, to BUSD families. And I think, and I'll then look to my colleagues if anybody else has anything to say. Um, but I also, you know, I mentioned earlier that in terms of working with the um, Berkeley Fire Readiness, what is what is that committee called? The agency within the city. I just also feel like that should be our next stage of collaboration. So, so you're, you're talking about the program in the fire department, the um, emergency yeah. preparedness. Yeah, emergency preparedness. And I know that they had said that, anyway, I, I, they had an event and, you know, it just were the majority of the city or the tenants. And yet they had almost nothing for for tenants, but they're very concerned. And I guess historically they had done some trainings at some of the bigger complexes. Um, but I think that we should be looking to collaborate, you know, big time on that. I guess, you know, it's, it's particularly stark in light of, you know, not being able to breathe for the last few days because of the fires. Yeah. I actually spoke with um, assistant chief Keith May mm-hmm. at the Solano stroll mm-hmm. a bit about this. They had a table and yeah. we were there as well. And we actually did talk about collaboration and, using um, potentially the rent boards network, or at least information for getting in touch with landlords and tenants related to emergencies and disaster preparedness. So yeah, I th- yeah we're on the same page there. And I, I'm- yeah. And I, I'm wondering if the um, climate change sustainability committee, if this isn't something that could be put there and um, committee chair, if that's something that you would be willing to take on at your committee. So this is about fire readiness that's happening because of climate change. Um, I think that that would be, there's just, I think a lot of interest on this. It sounds like many of us have been at different events where it's come up that this would be an important collaboration. And then um, one of the things I had thought about was, um, you know, there's supposed to be five feet around an apartment building. So you don't, to protect from fires and then that could become a housing service. And so if tenants observe that's not being done, they could ask for a rent reduction. Yeah. Um, okay. Any other questions or comments? I feel like I am commissioner Kelly. Why didn't you speak up? <laughs> Sorry. You can tell that I don't feel good when I am quiet. Um, I just want to say, I'm happy to also be of help in, connecting with fire. I'm not at the city anymore, but was doing quite a bit of work on that and I'm pretty familiar with those programs. I would be happy to make some recommendations and connections to folks. Um, I think it'll be a pretty easy lift. I think fire really wants to reach out to 
whoever, and I think it's just a coincidence that it hasn't happened. Um, well, there's factors, but you know, it's just the the groups that are organized are really good at organizing homeowners, and that's their target. But they fire would like to reach out to everyone, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wanted to ask back on Saha, which is when I originally raised my hand. Do we provide any financial funding directly to Saha, or have any contracts with them? No, not in terms of as the REM board. The city does. That's why HHS is um, over. You know, is the kind of overseer of them. Yeah, um, I, I would just say to staff. I spoke with. Um, with Councilmember Taplin's uh, chief of staff tonight about Saha, and they're happy to connect with our staff and would like to find out what's going on. Um, but they did indicate that there have been issues at that building that are ongoing um, in the periphery. They were not aware previously of the eviction notices being issued. Um, so perhaps we can facilitate a sit down with some of our electeds and perhaps the council member, the mayor, and them. But any pressure we can bring. Um, Towards that notice, I'd like to ask for a future agenda item that I intend to draft a letter condemning Saha for their actions to bring to the next board meeting. Hopefully that will get their attention. Thank you. Great. Thank you. I want to support that, um, Commissioner Kelly. The other thing is, um, in terms of working with the district, I know that the mailers are very effective. I encourage black and white and have people not get bogged down in color and that you that they work with community based organizations because that could help with the cost offset. The other thing is that somebody from the district, whether it be superintendent or anybody on the comms end should announce this at the board meeting. The board meetings have had some community engagement for a lot of different equity matters. And I think this would be an important place to, you know, kind of be the loud horn. So just, um, and then of course, across all board directors, I'm sure that they can speak to their constituents about it as well. Also, it could be at the two by two in terms of doing more outreach. Maybe you want to put that on the agenda. Forgot about that. All right. Um, thank you so much. Uh, yeah, more. Just, just in closing, yeah, there's an item on there about our community outreach events, and it's coming up. So <clears throat> we are at Solano Stroll a couple weeks, uh, I guess just last weekend. Um, we had eight of our staff participate in that event, which was great. Um, you know, that's a, a third of our agency that were out there. So um, we had a great time, obviously very popular and busy event. Sean and I attended the Black to School event at Willard Junior High, which was a back to school event specifically for Black families. We had some, I think, really, it was a smaller event. I would say maybe 25 or 30 families total. We would we were hoping for, and, and it's only the second annual, but I hope they, they grow their participation because uh, we had some really, I think, meaningful conversations at our table, and it was a very cool program they're putting on there. Um, upcoming, we have the Harvest Festival at Cedar Rose Park on October 21st. Commissioner Kelly sent over some Dia, Dia de los Muertos um, opportunities, one of which is also on the 21st at, mm. at Berkeley High. So we're right now exploring to see if we might be able to do both. I know Moni, who lives close to Berkeley High, um, said she'd be willing to table at the Dia de los Muertos event while the bigger event, Harvest Festival, um, you know, would probably have more staff um, at, the, at that event. But we're going to try to hit both if we can. There's also the Indigenous um, People's Day celebration on October 7th at Civic Center Park that we um, are 
hoping to participate in. I think we'll be able to be there. Um, and that's going to round out our 2023 community uh, events. And yeah, um, looking forward to coming back uh, 2024, the new year and new opportunities to do some outreach in the community at those events. Great. I guess the last thing I'll add is that um, at the with the guidance from the outreach committee, um, since April, we have been keeping some very light data um, from people who come to our tables just to help further inform, um, you know, staff and, and commissioners about who's coming to these events and who's talking to us. Are they Berkeley residents or not? So it has actually been pretty insightful to see, you know, a snapshot of that data after the event. Um, and, you know, some events are predominantly attended by non-Berkeley residents, interestingly enough, such as the Bay Festival um, a couple months ago. And, and others, you know, such as the BUSD backpack giveaway events and BUSD events, those are predominantly Berkeley households and folks who live in Berkeley. So we, we generally just ask, oh, are you, are you a tenant or a landlord or other? Do you live in Berkeley? Um, are you aware of the rent board? And have you used our services? And then we have uh, additional notes for other interesting things we might hear. So, um, yeah, we're going to continue just when it's when it's convenient to take that data. There have been some instances where people don't have said, what are you doing? Don't take down any notes about what I'm telling you right now. So we try to be respectful of that. But I think it has been helpful just to take some some light data points of who we're talking to at these events to better understand, you know, who who's coming to these events and if it's a good place for us to be. So. With that, I'll say that even the the larger events that are maybe not predominantly Berkeley residents or a mixture, I think it is still quite valuable for us to have our table out there and our canopy and for us to have that visibility. We have, you know, at least speaking for myself, good conversations with our, our partners in public health or the library who are usually tabled near us. And there's some cross collaboration there. But I think even if folks aren't coming to the table um, and asking about our services, I think having that visibility there and, and people in the community seeing the rent board at these events is still um, quite valuable and a good use of our time. So we'll continue to do that. But I think what we've been focusing on the last couple months is, is yeah, how do we strengthen and improve the opportunities with the USD? Peralta Colleges was brought up at the last outreach committee meeting. So trying to explore and further that relationship and opportunity to present to their community um, about the services we have at the rent board um, and just, yeah, continuing to evolve and further our efforts in that way um, in an effort to get our survey numbers back up to where they were 2009 levels of percentage of community members being aware of the rent board and, and what we can provide. Great. Thank you so, so much. All right. Not seeing anybody other's hands raised. I'm going to move us along. Um, we now get to hear, I think, some good news about, thank you so much, um, some news on item D, 11D. I think this is uh, you, Councilor Brown. Yeah. If, Amy, you could pull up the <clears throat> PowerPoint, please. Uh, while she's doing that, I will uh, move us along a little bit here. This is really good news. This is... Um, a case that we won at a, a variety of different levels that it now has created really good case law for tenants all around California who live in rent controlled jurisdictions, particularly. Um, and so I wanted to uh, sort of go through um, um, what the case was and what we uh, uh, accomplished and how we were able to work with the nine commission, not these nine commissioners, at least one. Um, and then uh, I believe that uh, Vice Chair Alpert was around for one of the decisions as well that spanned uh, between um, these are two decisions um, that the board ruled on in 
Oh, hello. Um, that the board ruled on in November and December of 2018. So I believe that December was your first meeting. Um, pardon? Okay. Um, so uh, uh, these cases, the, the, the primary proposition of these cases centers around a part of Costa Hawkins, which essentially says that any unit for which a certificate of, certificate of occupancy is issued after February 1st of 1995 is exempt from rent control. Um, and we had a couple of buildings. You can go to the next slide, please, Amy. Where the owners purchased uh, old dilapidated buildings and um, converted each of them to triplexes, but did not... Uh, materially uh, increase the living space associated with it, but did carve out some new living space in one property um, in the basement and the other property in the attic, which were not previously there. Um, so as you can see, this is um, 2401 Waring Street. Both of these properties are in the upper campus area. Um, so very desirable for renting to students and very desirable um, for rent control purposes as well, because those students generally don't stay too long. So you're almost always going to have a market rent associated with these with these units. So, um, you know, the Costa Hawkins, um, you know, has that provision in it, which severely limits our ability to control the rents and to stabilize households and to really stabilize neighborhoods and community um, because there's constant turnover. And so, um, as you can see, um, um, this, this particular property um, had uh, uh, 11 rooms in it, and when they uh, uh, reformatted it, re re restructured it, and um, uh, rehabbed it, they uh, carved it up into three units, um, and in this particular property, um, they uh, carved uh, uh, habitable space that didn't exist in the basement, you go to the next slide, please, Amy. And this is what it looked like after the rehab. This is a three-unit property now. Um, it's, uh, it's a permitted triplex. Um, each unit got a certificate of occupancy. Um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rush through these slides because the important stuff is later. Go ahead, Amy. And this one is uh, 2504 Dana Street. Um, and this is what it looked like before. Again, um, the, both of these units had a history of um, rooming house. Um, and as we all know, uh, just because it's a single family home, when the owner operates it as a multifamily dwelling, like a rooming house, uh, let's say rents to all nine of you under separate leases, we consider that to be a rent control environment and we are able to regulate each room as a unit. So these unit, these were technically single-family homes, but they were being operated as multifamily dwellings. Um, next slide, please. And here is 2504 Dana um, Street uh, after the renovation. Again, um, they were. Uh, these are uh, uh, three uh, new units. This this particular property had. Uh, 15 rooms in it uh, prior as a single family home and was converted to 19. Again, this property uh, uh, 
the attic was a new space in it. Uh, next slide, please. So the board determined that four of the six units are rent controlled since they are created from existing re residential space. So essentially, uh, we received a petition that said we have all new certificate of occupancy. We have six new certificate of occupancies here. Costa Hawkins says you've got to um, you've got to exempt all of them from rent control because that's what Costa Hawkins says. Uh, well. Um, there is a case um, called Burien um, um, down from Southern California that holds that when you don't materially uh, increase the living space or the housing space um, for tenants, that just changing uh, the units or rather just securing new certificates of occupancy does not necessarily exempt you from rent control. That case was a condominium conversion case. So it was truly a paper conversion. This case involved a much more substantial rehabilitation of the property, but our our analysis was is that it still applies. You're not changing the footprint of the property. You're not demolishing the units. You're just reconfiguring the space. Um, and frankly, it, it, in many ways, we were cautious um, with the board. Um, the we 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 determined I can't remember which one we determined first um, that that two were were um, going to be rent controlled and one was going to be um, and one was going to be uh, exempt as new construction and then the next month when we considered the next case the hearing examiner had actually ruled that all three were covered and we said to be consistent we want to uh, to uh, exempt the space that was actually new, uh, that was new and was not occupied previously. Um, so we were very deliberate with the board, and the board, I think, made a very responsible decision to go along with that. So um, the uh, uh, again, this this case uh, uh, went through. Uh, they th these are expensive cases, obviously. Um, they exhausted their administrative remedies with you. You all made a dis final determination that these that two were controlled and uh, and one was exempt on each unit. Then they uh, go to the next slide, please. So they challenged the board's decision and brought a writ of mandate uh, to court. Uh, they lost um, in May of 2021 uh, at that trial court. Uh, they decided that um, even with the trial court judges uh, very convincing uh, ruling um, that they were going to challenge it and they went to the court of appeal um, and the appellate court upheld um, our board's uh, determination with an extremely strongly worded opinion um, but they weren't satisfied again and so they uh, petitioned for uh, what's called a writ of searcher or sorry they petition for certiorari, which is basically review from the California Supreme Court, and they lost there because the California Supreme Court said there's nothing new to decide here. So these are expensive cases, and they fought it all the way to the end. Next slide, please. So we adopted in 2017 a resolution, 1713, which basically um, was the board's interpretation of Burien, which is the case that I said that I talked about before, and basically says 
that when you have space that is just reconfigured from previously existing space, that space is not cost to Hawkins exempt, even if you secure a certificate of occupancy. It was just a restatement of what the California courts had already said. And the uh, um, the appellate court in, um, um, in a published decision, um, which is very important because that means that it can be used all up and down California. It's not just specific to this area. So any, any um, um, rent control jurisdiction particularly benefits from these decisions. Um, they cited very strongly that our resolution 1713 as written, was a reasonable interpretation and, and was not in conflict with, with Costa-Hawkins, specifically cited that, um, which is terrific. So, you know, we've, we've encouraged other jurisdictions to adopt similar resolutions and regulations. Um, I just wanted to say one other thing here, the, um, that this is a case where not only were we cautious, but we were thoughtful um, in the ways that we address these issues of um, of what we regulate now, the, the the court generally gives fairly broad authority for local agencies like us to uh, exercise jurisdiction over that which our ordinance allows us, and I think that we stayed very squarely within the, that framework. Um, just for some um, um, some numbers to throw out um, that were not in the slides. Um, the new square footage uh, of space added to both the properties is less than the square footage that we actually exempted. So, for example, uh, Dana added 1,245 square feet to their property with the um, um, with all of their uh, uh, with all of 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 their uh, uh, re rehabilitation, and we exempted more than 1,700 square feet. Um, Waring uh, added 645 square feet to their property, and we exempted 1,254 square feet. So that's the size of each unit that was was exempted. So they actually stole a little bit from the space that was previously existing, but we said that's fine. You know, we're th this is this is substantially uninhabitable space, and we're going to exempt that, and we were consistent about that. At at all levels, the landlord's uh, attorneys tried to claim that they were. Um, that that this kind of decision would uh, freeze um, rehabilitation and promote what they called mega mansions, um, and I just want to put some context on what exactly uh, rents they're receiving right now. The current rents at Dana Street are eight thousand seven hundred fifty dollars for a seven bedroom, uh, eight thousand eight hundred sixty eight dollars for a six bedroom. And uh, $6,805 for a six-bedroom. The rents at Waring Street uh, for the two units that we cover are $5,295, um, $5,310, and $9,000. So to cry poor <laughs> in a situation where you have rental uh, income generation of over $25,000 in some cases is the court of appeal basically took them to task on this. One of the justices um, um, said, you know, how, how are you crying poor? Essentially, it was really a, a fun moment in the, in the whole proceeding. Um, and so this basically is um, something that we can be really proud of. We won another case um, that was published, I think about eight years ago, that significantly protected um, owner move-in protections that the board can pass. 
um, that that allow um, us to consider um, uh, that allow us to consider um, tenants who leave within a year of the time that a notice is served to have left based on that and to and to regulate the next rent that is established thereafter. Um, and the court in that case again said, "This is reasonable. This is this is a reasonable eviction protection to not allow landlords unfair leverage by serving a notice to which a tenant has very few um, defenses, and then thereafter negotiate a move out and say it was voluntary." So we have two really good cases on the on the books that are helping a lot of um, California jurisdictions um, to help protect and stabilize tenancies. And really, that's a, a testament to us working very uh, harmoniously with the board on those things. That concludes. You can go to the next. Um, if there's any questions, uh, I did go through that fairly quickly. Thank you. I think uh, just how do you recommend uh, we share this work? Because I know for me, I I cross lines all over the U.S. and I'm always speaking to people. I'm wondering how do we surface what you're saying to others so that we could get rent control maybe in more areas or... I'm happy to write up the highlights, sort of talking points that you could um, distribute to um, the various stakeholders that you work with or any other kinds of people who I'm, might be allies. I'd be happy to write that up. This is something that we've been discussing, obviously, with other jurisdictions since it happened. Um, we were fairly emboldened by discussing with other jurisdictions who thought that we had a really good case. And so, and we, we thought we had a good case too. This was one where, you know, we, we don't like to leave the board, board vulnerable. We thought that this was a good case to leave the board vulnerable. Okay. Thank you so much. Um, it's in light of just hearing that 50 seniors are being evicted to hear some good fights that we won is, is helpful. All right, um, moving on to um, E, which is the article, it's self-explanatory. Um, and then just quickly moving on to the next piece, which is just to remind folks that if you want agenda items, uh, October 6th by 5 p.m. And moving on to committee, uh, and board updates and announcements, uh, budget personnel committee. Are there any updates? We don't have any updates at this time. Yeah. I know we didn't have committee meetings in the last month. So, um, can we make a note that the October board meeting date has changed? Yes. Oh, that's uh, you can mention it whenever you want, but there's an item about future board meetings coming up after that committee's. Do it now or do it then. Just okay. have to make note that that's changed. Um, and then eviction section eight foreclosure committee. Do you have any updates? Who's um, on? Yeah, I'm the chair. Yeah, um, uh, we we had to reschedule our meeting to the 26th. We'll be meeting next week. Um, where we'll talk about Measure A owner movement evictions, uh, the Ellis Act withdrawal eviction report, and updates on the COVID-19 eviction moratorium. So, um, hopefully, we'll be able to get some more information about the Strawberry Creek Lodge situation then. Great, thank you. Um, Lyra, 
Uh, Committee Chair Kelly? Yes, our meeting date is in the materials, but I just wanted to update everyone to be aware that this is the meeting at which we will be um, taking our advisory action to the full board on the AGA increase. And so then that vote will happen um, at the October meeting. So it's a pretty important leader meeting. I hope that all the leader members are able to be there. Thank you. Uh, Outreach Committee? Um, I was unfortunately absent from the previous meeting due to COVID, which I have now recovered from and tested negative for multiple times to everyone, just give everyone reassurances. Um, but if Commissioner Kelly, who shared that meeting, would like to report out. Uh, for the outreach meeting? Yeah. So um, Nate provided much of his update again tonight and some highlights. I would say one wonderful thing that staff is doing is really tracking the efficacy um, with which we are responding to requests for information. And they've implemented several processes to expedite that process, including an online form, um, a, a better um, method for scheduling um, appointments more efficiently to make sure that the information is available to housing counselors before they connect with clients. And I think another thing that is really heartening is just to see some data being analyzed in this process. Um, instead of just a lot of anecdotal information, there's a lot more numbers to look at and a lot more um, of that will be coming down the pike. Um, and then also, uh, Nate shared the kind of statistics around the events and things, but one thing they're working on that I think is really welcomed is uh, anticipating recurring kind of cycles like Cal move out, Cal move in, you know, the time of year that rent increases go out, the time of year that people are more likely to move, the time of year that school starts and ends, um, and for things that they can do on a recurring and proactive basis. And so that's just some of the work that's being done there. I think that um, as staff continues to refine um, the information and some of the processes that they have in place, they'll continue to make recommendations, but it's really heartening to see um, that level of commitment to improving our outreach and being able to kind of monitor and track that information a little bit more um, numerically, which is really valuable. So thank you to our outreach staff for that hard work. Um, and I think that's the most important part of the update. Great, thank you. Uh, four by four, we have our next meeting next Wednesday. Um, and I, we will be talking about the demolition ordinance, I think is one of the biggest um, highlights. And then it sounds like we'll be talking about the, the 50 eviction notice. Um, two by two. You're the committee chair. <laughs> I didn't know if that was official. Um, we did have a meeting, which was really great. And we talked about a lot of ways we can deepen our work with the unified school district. Um, we will have another meeting this coming Monday, encouraging the community who's listening to come out to that. But we are really kind of like on the way of having a very targeted plan of collaboration and hopefully implementation around um, the issues that we represent, as well as the families and communities that the Berkeley Unified School District supports. Great, thank you. Um, the Ad Hoc Committee on Environmental Sustainability. Uh, we had a 
really good meeting. Uh, and I would like to apologize to everyone for having kept them way too long. Uh, it was just so interesting. I lost, I lost uh, track of time. Uh, we had a, um, we had uh, staff from the Office of Energy and Sustainable Development, Eamon Reagan and Rebecca Milliken. We had a member of the public who is also a building inspector, Mr. Bryce Nesbitt, who, uh, you know, they, they all have a really wealth of information and knowledge about, you know, how, how all these topics intersect. Um, Mr. Nesbitt had some great ideas about, you know, how the inspection process could be used to gather a lot of data on what's going on in the apartments in terms of energy efficiency. And uh, 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 our staff, uh, Nathan um, Dahl, is uh, working on a report um, we would like to sort of start a pilot program to, um, I don't want to say target, it sounds negative, but to work with landlords who are currently paying for either gas and or electric uh, to see, you know, what can be done there to kind of start on, on, a, on some way to you know, incentivized. I mean, they, they, they have the most um, skin in the game, you know, because their energy costs are going up. And and so um, that's something we'd like to start with. And um, also, um, I'll be uh, contacting the, um, I believe it's the building inspection department to see, you know, if they can attend the next meeting and give us some more information on how their program could be you know, how the, to find some synergy and uh, there, there's a lot of work to be done it's very complex and uh, one of the things that we discussed quite a bit was the monies available through the uh, Inflation Reduction Act but it's still not from what I understood it's not quite quite tied down yet so it, there are a lot of things still up in the air i also know that the commission the california commission on energy has a program that they're implementing for multifamilies, and so that is also another um venue because they're literally in the process of putting the program mm. together and i had um met with them and had suggested that they focus on rent control jurisdictions um so i'll share those contacts yeah, there was also the 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 uh, CPUC has been um, making some decisions that were not ideal on that topic lately. Mm -hmm. um, something I need to look into more deeply before the next meeting. Um, I also wonder if that's something that our uh, legislative advocate can look at is some of these commissions that are making decisions on how you know, things that they're doing around energy efficiency is impacting tenants and it's going to impact Berkeley tenants. I guess, especially given the, the data from the tenant survey, it's, it's quite telling. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but maybe your committee could come up with different commissions that we may be wanting to monitor. That could be something we add to the legislative, to their contract. 
All right. I'm sorry. I'm like in that mode where it's so late that I'm slowing down. I apologize. All right. Uh, any updates and announcements? Yes. Just wanted to update everyone that we if a number of members of the board and our legal counsel attended the uh, local progress convention in St. Louis, Missouri, um, which was, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, I think it went really well. Uh, we met a lot of people, and uh, I think importantly, also a lot of people met us. I, you know, I had a lot of different people who wanted to talk to Matt about all the different bits of wisdom we could offer other jurisdictions about rent control and tenant protection. So, a lot of great opportunities both to make new connections and share our wisdom uh, and experience. And I hope even more folks can. And I was very sorry that one of our members who was going to attend couldn't, but I hope that even more people can attend next year because the big announcement, thank you, Matt, I was going to, uh, is that it will be in Oakland. Um, so we will not have to travel very far for next year's convention. Yeah. Um, I was talking with the folks who work on their housing component and we were already kind of um, conspiring about how we'll, what we can show them and what we can show the rest of the country. Uh, we we won't mention the 50 seniors we're evicting. Thank you. Exactly. Um, I was actually sharing that with outreach to, yeah, you guys remember doing amazing things here in Berkeley. I wanted to just share with my colleagues, whoever touches the educational system, that <clears throat> I was appointed to the Regional Advisory Committee of the West, which includes a number of states, including California. The reason why I'm telling you this is because if you have kids, nieces, nephews, anyone um, that is using educational resources and you would like to speak with me about what needs you feel um, is, you know, coming from a, a federal level, please reach out to me. There's three ways you can get involved. One is a public comment um, survey that is in Spanish and English. Another is you can participate with a focus group that I'll be um facilitating and then another way is that you can weigh in actually on the committee meetings that we have so just wanted to share you know, with everybody who has kiddos in this system it's k-12 it's not higher ed but um it's really going to be really important work moving forward so thanks thanks all right uh discussion of items for possible placement future agenda um we are going to be moving the um October meeting, um, and this is um, at my request because I will be out of the country for ours, and because we'll be doing evaluations, I feel like it's it's important. Um, can you remind us the date that's being proposed? October 23rd. Yeah. Is that, um, if you can just get back to the um, secretary, if that is a date that is going to be a problem to make sure we have quorum? Oh, as far as people responding to that date, making sure that it's a Monday it is Monday, October 23rd. If that is, has that already, that's not already been sent out to everybody. Right? It has not. Okay. All right. So folks can get back to, I mean, share with the chair once you, or if, yes, the chair of the uh, rent board, um, Amy, um, you know, obviously I don't want ever, me alone to be here at the meeting. Okay. Uh, Commissioner Johnson. I, I just want to clarify, are we sharing if we can't make it or are we just just letting know if you cannot? OK, you cannot. Yeah. Um, and then were we going to give an update on the um, the board retreat? Would you like me to? <laughs> I think we should. I want to make sure it's on everybody's. Uh, so there is a um, commissioner's retreat October 4th. 
from 8.30 to 5 at the David Brower Center. This is a very pretty building. It will be my first time being there, so I wouldn't know, but I'm assuming that it is from the pictures. It's very fancy. Um, you are now fancy. We are all officially fancy. Um, and then food, so breakfast, a light continental breakfast is yes. being served, as well as lunch. You should have um, all received a piece of mm-hmm. paper from Amy that you need to submit your um, lunch options. And if you can give it to her before you leave tonight, that would be great if you have not already submitted that to her. And Commissioner Kelly, I'll email that to you since you're not here in person. Perhaps to get your lunch order. Thanks. Did we talk about this before or check with commissioners about their being available for this thing? Did you just call it a little thing? I haven't heard about it before and I'm being told to be well, there on a day. It's that a I big thing. We talked about be. the commissioner's uh, retreat, but not necessarily this specific date. This was, we've talked about the event, not the specific date. Are you um, otherwise obligated? I just think it would be a good general practice to check with the commission before we schedule things. Agreed. Yes. And I, I, just to let everyone know, I will not be able to attend that. I um, will be out of the country. Okay. All right. So, because I didn't realize until tonight that folks weren't aware of that date, I will send out an official invitation so that everyone has it on their calendar with the um, event address um, for those who haven't been to the David Brower Center. Great. All right. Um, can I get a motion to adjourn? So oh. moved. <laughs> I don't have to go. No. Second? Who is second? All right. Hey, Albert. Hi. Elkstrand? Yes. Johnson? Yes. Kelly? Yes. Uh, Marrero? Yes. Martinac? Yes. Mizell? Yes. Walker? Yes. Simon Weisberg? Yes. Motion carries. Thanks, everyone.